Welcome to episode 40 of the Plastic Posse podcast. Normally we start out our show with a little bit of fun, some bloopers, but this uh, last week uh, we lost a brother, Patrick Perales, and we just didn't feel like it was um, the right tone to start the show with. Patrick, we'll miss you. You're our brother, and uh, hopefully we see you again someday. deputies welcome to the plastic posse podcast glad to have you along for episode 40 as we discuss the hobby we all love scale modeling it's jb here and i'm joined by a group of friends throughout the country and world who are some of the best modelers out there joining us from the uk his lordship ivan jensen taylor if you could see me i'm kneeling in front of him <laughs> from just west of me uh in utah is, is scott and, and doug welcome gentlemen and then lastly but certainly not leastly from our nation's capital tj holler before we dive into the show let's go around the room and hear hear the latest from your bench so what has everybody been up to ivan right so i've been working on my m3 lee for what seems like six years now <laughs> Luckily now, I'd say there's about three days' work left in it. I did all the stowage, that's all glued on, and it was just black for a long time. I tried to paint some of it. I'm really bad at painting stowage, so what I've done is with uh, Tamiya two-part epoxy putty, I've made a tarp. It actually looks really good, I think. There's like folds and creases, but now I've realized I'm really bad at painting tarps. Um, (laughs) So now I'm then going to cover the tarp with some other stowage. I don't know how big this model's going to be at the end of it, but um, the tarp is now green. Uh, but I plan to put like a, a guitar from the mini art instrument set and some tools and just make the model look a bit more lived in with actual stuff around the tank, like maybe some instrument music, sheet music, just little little knickknacks to make it a bit more, yes, real. But yeah, I've been working on that. There's about three days left in it, and I'm really hoping to get that done so I can work on one of my machine Grieger kits because I want a little break. TJ, you've been going crazy on a 3D printer. Has your bench seen any action? Uh not as much as you probably should because I have barely started the, the Musaru Cup entry. I have started it. Um, if any, if anybody else said that, we would be freaking out right yeah, now. Yeah. Um, but but it's TJ. It's all good. He'll have it done by Thursday at two. Yeah, Mike and Dave. It have to be like twenty twenty three. Well, it's, it's funny. It's funny oh. that you say that. Oh. It's funny that you say that because according to their episode that dropped today, the day we were recording this, which is February the 25th, Mike has not even primed his yet. So he has built it, but he has done no paint works. So I did when I heard that, I was like, oh man, I don't feel that bad. But, and this is just a, I'll just be perfectly honest. I am not interested in this kit. Not because of the Muzuru. I love, I think that's great, but um, I have learned that I do not like Gundams. They just don't do anything for me. If you're in them, that's cool. Like, and I, and I've built some in the past, and and they're fine. But like the ones I've built, I've just 
because I built them because I felt like I wanted something different to do. I've not painted them. They I put them together. They went and stood my shelf. That was it. So having to actually care about a Gundam kit is, is proving to be rather difficult, but I'm committed to getting it done and I will get it done. And I've done a little bit of work on the mini art um, E400 standard. Part of that kit is a little bit of the pardon my language, but uh, where the cab fits together, the seam is not the best, which is actually kind of surprising because everything else fit really well. And there's a step where the pieces meet and it's not me. It's 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 the kit. I've had to fill it and then sand it and then prime it, then fill it again, sand. And I've just been doing it just like nonstop. So I feel I think I got it. So, yeah, the inside's painted. I just, it's put together. Everything's in sub assemblies. It's almost, I could knock it out in a weekend. I just, I need to do it. So yeah, that's such a cool little vehicle. All right. Let's go over to Utah. Doug, how's your bench looking? I know you've posted some snakes online too. Yes. I, well, the snakes are doing great. Um, I never got those <laughs> eggs. I told you I was waiting for, I don't think she's going to give me any this year. I've actually been pretty busy. I got some work done on the M3 Grant. I finally figured out how that how to even start it because that mini art kit was a little bit uh, confusing by the instructions and by the way the parts fit. It's just not great design, but I've got the most of the the lower hole is done. Uh, you know, needs some touch ups. I went a little crazy uh, with some Star Wars stuff. I pulled out that Millennium Falcon and Blockade Runner kit, threw those together, got them primed and uh, ready for some some more paint. I did that Falcon assembly in like 15 minutes. It was fun. Just just was a, something I wanted to do. I just did it. And I wrapped up, other than some scratch building I need to do for an engine part, but a little uh, Machining Krieger, the Fireball SG. It's 135th scale. Thing's about two and a half inches tall. But I spent uh, quite a few hours on that thing. Um, I, I love it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I love the, the, the blue distress paint on it. I think you did a great job. Let's talk to your neighbor over there, Scott. You've been around the world in 90 days. What's going on, man? I guess I would uh, describe my bench in the last two weeks as, you know, kind of out for field research. Uh, obviously, uh, John and I went to the Pacific Northwest to Seattle um, for an awesome show, which we will talk more about. Man, there is, a, I, I just don't think there's any more inspiring way to get your mojo boosted up than to have a model show underneath a Blackbird. I mean, it's just as cool, as cool as it gets. And uh, the Museum of Flight, if anyone's in the area, maybe Make sure you make time to go to that museum. John and I got to walk through a Concorde. I've never even seen one. It was just great in every way. I won't, won't go on and on there. But uh, we also visited one of the great hobby shops in the Western United States at Skyway Hobbies. And uh, man, they treated us right. They uh, opened their doors on Sunday in the middle of the show to accommodate us, which was great. We got to go in and, and meet the owner who had just come back from church. <laughs> so uh, he was a great guy lots of hospitality what a great little shop just a treasure and uh, the modelers up there are lucky to have that as kind of one of their hubs up there so that was great and then uh, my bench uh, haven't really made much progress but uh, obviously uh, with our good buddy Patrick passing uh, he 3d printed a model for me and everything else is moving aside and that model's going to get done and you know we'll talk about that more in uh, episodes to come but anyway that's what I've been up to John, what about you? Uh, I joined you for about half that time. So I was in Seattle as well with Scott 
absolutely stellar show. We will give you a full rundown coming up. The, the Skyway Hobby, the show itself, we have to give a lot of a lot of kudos to Jim Bates, our gracious host. And, you know, we had some folks from Denver visit as well. John Everett, Steve Baker, Steve's dad, Mark, just an overall fantastic time. Honestly, it was three days, just a blur. It was truly an amazing experience. From the bench, I'm working on the Emma night. I am nearing completion. It will be done this weekend. So I'm hoping to crank that out. I got that World War One tank from Vargas. I hope to get finished this weekend as well. It's super close. And then we'll turn our attention back to the Stug. And if I can get those three done before Commies Fest, I will be very happy. All right. So that was an update from our benches. Now, tonight, we're going to have really a light discussion and then turn it over to our show report from Seattle. We had the pleasure of attending the Northwest Scale Modeler Show, which we just talked about on our gracious hosts and guests that we met at the Museum of Flight. We It was, again, three days of pure pure awesomeness we we saw we met a lot of our supporters we saw awesome models that they brought and then we made a lot of new friends which which we'll be sure to uh, highlight right now so for the interview segment we've actually got several here i think you're going to find them all really really interesting the first segment we did with tim nelson who is the show chair along with jim bates and we just kind of talk about some of the history of the show and the goals then we roll right into an interview with awesome guy friend of the podcast rick lawler We talk about his impressions of the show. He came up and spent Saturday with us. It was awesome to hang out with him. We also talk about Rick's new book, With or Without, really just a a, a great book. Then we talk to a couple of modelers uh, from the Washington area. Joshua Scott, um, he also goes by the handle on Instagram of Cobrapla. He was a lot of fun to meet and get to know him, and he does great work. And then Terry Moore, who is uh, another great modeler who brought a bunch of work to the show. Very, very inspiring. And then we wrap up the interviews with Matthew Burchett, who is actually the museum curator for the Museum of Flight. And uh, Jim Bates joins us for that as well. And you're going to definitely want to stick around for that interview, uh, find out about the museum and, you know, kind of its approach to their displays and also about Matthew's own modeling. He's quite a serious scale modeler as well. So anyway, uh, enjoy the interviews. Plastic Posse here, uh, John Bonani, Scott Gentry here at the Museum of Flight in Seattle. I'm here with Tim Nelson and Jim Bates, and we are at the Model Mania show with the Northwest Scale Modelers Club, and man, incredible venue, incredible show, amazing models on the table. Uh, Tim, you're uh, in charge of the show. Tell us a little bit about the show and uh, maybe the history of it and uh, how this event came to be. Yeah, we've been doing this show since the early 90s. It's a uh, it's kind of a unique format because it's a pure exhibition. So I think people really love it for that reason. You don't have the stress of either being judge or having to judge. And people bring not only their latest and greatest, but they bring their really old stuff, which is neat to see. You can see how people progress or not uh, over the years. So um, I became involved with the club in the late 90s, and by 2002, I found myself running the show. 
And so this is my 20th year of running the show and my final year <laughs> because I will be handing the Northwest Scale Modeler show baton to this guy, Jim Bates, after oh, this year. And he's been my able assistant for the last few years getting ready for this uh, auspicious moment. But yeah, we're excited that we used to do the entire show in this space to our right here. Uh, and it was a one-day show, huge hassle uh, for one day. And we lobbied with the museum uh, in 2004 to get down in the main gallery, do a two-day show, which is also kind of unique in the hobby. Um, and because of that, people pull out all the stops, try a little harder, bring yeah. more stuff. And... Um, it's just grown and grown and you know we've we've reached out to other local clubs like uh there's a local science fiction club that does amazing work we've reached out to them they bring stuff that people are just fascinated with um ipms seattle which we're all members of is a huge club and we've tapped into them so it's it's just one big ball of modeling goodness well, you've hit a con upon a couple of really unique things. I mean, first of all, uh, John Bonani, um, is there any venue you've ever been to on a model show that is cooler than having models underneath a Blackbird? Certainly not. I mean, this is the best show in terms of venue I've ever been to, and I applaud you guys for it. I think what's important is it's not only the atmosphere, but also how you hold the show as well. I love the idea with black tablecloths. It looks so professional. You know, you got workstations for people all around the venue. So you have the modelers not only bringing their stuff to show, but you're also having them show how they're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of engagement down there from younger modelers, kids to even adults that stand by, watch them do their work and learn. So I think that's a really important aspect of the show. And then also the generosity of the members as well that are participating. You know, multiple guys down there have, hey, this is free. Come on, take it home and really spreading the love for the hobby. So I think what you have here is a winning formula. Um, you know, Jim certainly has big shoes to fill, no pressure, but I'll be honest, this don't is one of the, it, don't blow it, Jim. Come on, Jim. Uh, <laughs> but I will say this is the coolest show I've ever been to for, for a modeling event, just because of that aspect, the display only. I think it's, that is not something we do here in America. And yeah. I love what you said about, you know, there's no pressure of being judged or judging. It's purely at the heart of the hobby and what we love to do and display that work. And the guy with the uh, fire trucks down there, oh my gosh, yeah. the creativity and, and and then you have other stuff like the YF-23 that's painted up in Japanese markings. I mean, and then you have Bill Huffman's furniture pieces. It is, again, it's, it's something that you could never see at typical shows, to be honest. Right. Um, and just at the sheer volume of what they produce. And like you said, you see the modeler's growth as well. You yeah. can see some of their earliest pieces all the way up to what they've been doing now. So... Jim, I'm going to pass the torch to you and maybe you can talk about, uh, you know, where you see the show going and what you hope to see from this year alone. So here you go. Well, the big thing that I want to see going forward, and we've been expanding this every year, is getting more and more non-aircraft models. Um, like we've got, I don't know how many, six tables full of tanks. We've got a bunch oh, yeah. of um, Gundams. We've got John DeRoja's fire apparatus. So what kind of my view of this is it's an outreach to expose the public to all kinds of modeling 
so that they can either get re-engaged or at least be interested or maybe go home and say, hey, I did this back in the day. Maybe I should pick it up again. And as certainly you guys have talked about, I think we have a lot of COVID modelers who came back um, during COVID to uh, do that. And it's just awesome to see. And it's really just to be inspirational and motivating and kind of an outreach thing. That's pretty awesome. I just thought Canada was just trying to take over another American model show. Well, I'm trying my best. Um, We'll see what happens. Everything next year has to be Maple Leafs. So uh, (laughs) that'll be a requirement on all the models. Um, Wait, you left Canada when? 1986. Okay. The Canadian Canada. It's been a while. It's been a long time. (laughs) You know, I think uh, we've we've had several uh, Boeing Museum uh, people express gratitude for the crowds that are showing up and and i mean it's it's going to be a busy busy day but i guess uh tim going back to you it's hard to imagine a young person and we've interacted with a few of them being able to come to an event like this and not come away inspired between the actual aircraft the modeling the demonstrations that are going on and the encouragement i mean what a fantastic environment for young people yeah we 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 try to uh, engage uh, young folks because, you know, let's face it, none of us are getting any younger. Uh, we used to have for about 15 years a make and take uh, put on by a couple of our local hobby shops. And unfortunately, that kind of dried up about three or four years ago uh, because of the the uh, kits that they were able or not able to obtain yeah, from the manufacturers. Types, yeah. So we hope to bring that back at some point because that's that's a huge thing. Uh, to It's great for them to see all the models and see the modelers, but missing the hands-on part is a gap. So yeah. we'd, we'd like to fill that. Jim's going to take care of that. For us. <laughs> Actually, oh. I just had a thought. I should hit up Atlantis and see if they're willing to help us out. Yeah. They've got some great kits for uh, make and take. That's an excellent point. And one of our local guys is one of the investors at Atlantis. Uh, just one point about the museum partnership. Uh, I would so strongly advocate for you know any model club. If you're near a museum that has anything to do with history, you know, aviation, military, whatever, try to strike up a partnership because th- this club has such a symbiotic relationship with the Museum of Flight. We, ha- we have our meetings here in the oldest airplane factory in North America, the Red Barn over there. Um, we get to do displays and cases that they allocate to us by the cafe several times a year Uh, obviously we get to do this show we help them with a few projects here and there model repairs so yeah i think i think that's a really good point the the folks up at hamilton at canadian warplane heritage have found that secret formula as well and i guess it's not a secret but you bring up a really good point a lot of these places want to drive attention to the exhibits want to bring new people in and you know one easy way is to you know have that hands-on hobby and and be able to replicate something that's literally right in front of them and i i think it's inspiring i mean i'm gonna get it wrong but it's an m21 right the right the the blackbird look like the last surviving m21 with the drone i mean i'm an armor modeler but i think one of the coolest things is putting my models in front of something like that i mean it's you have so much pride it's it's inspiring and it's just downright cool and i think that's just a winning combo 
Well, and the one benefit for the museum, and, and this is the same thing with the Canadian Warplane Heritage, they usually do these in off-season. Yeah. So maybe on a Saturday in February, not a huge amount of people are coming to the museum, and this right. helped drive some extra attendance. Perfect so it, day for it. Cloudy right. It's, it's cloudy and rainy. and That's weird. Yeah, that's weird <laughs> in Seattle. And and I, I can't go without correcting Scott, because he does this all the time, and the person sitting next to me kicks me every time he does it. And that is, it is not the Boeing Museum of Flight. It is just the Boeing Museum of Flight. They aren't part of Boeing. So stop it, Scott, because Tim gets the, mad at me every time. The Museum of Flight. Yeah. Boeing is a sponsor, but they don't own it. All right. I stand corrected. <laughs> well, I've got two questions. Uh, Tim, first of all, for you, what advice would you give to other shows as far as putting on a show where competition's not the set, the central element? And then after you're done with that, Jim, uh, maybe if you could tell us how many models that uh, approximately you think are here and uh, maybe uh, kind of, you know, all joking aside, maybe what you see um, for next year's show. Yeah, there, there is a segment of the hobby that I think is kind of demotivated if there's if competition is not involved. Uh, and we have a huge IPMS contest here every April. And unfortunately, that's in limbo again this year because of the venue. But uh, I think we have just played up the camaraderie aspect, uh, you know, just chilling with your fellow, fellow modelers. You, you actually have time to go see everything. You can you can hit that person up and say, hey, you know, how'd you do that? And actually have time to talk about it. And. Over the years, we've added seminars, and uh, and you guys are part of that this yeah. time, which we appreciate. Um, so we just try to make it this big communal learning thing, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons it's popular, that and the, the low stress. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing is competition is, is well, I'm an anti-competition guy, so I, I think it does add stress and it does turn people off. And this is just engaging, getting everybody. It's all inclusive. You know, there's all levels of modelers. You know, I call myself a pretty mediocre to below average modeler, but Tim next to me is an amazing modeler. But we're all able to display and we're all able to show this. And even when I go to the IPMS Nationals or the show, it's it's not really about the competition for me. It's about the hang anyway. So this is what this is just a big hangout, and that's why I love it. Um, I don't know. We haven't done the count yet of how many models. I would say probably around a thousand. I'm I'm guessing around fifteen hundred. We'll wow. do a, we'll do a count around midday. The, we typically get eighteen hundred to uh, two thousand. We did a. A maximum effort blowout show ten years ago where we had three thousand models. Cow. We're never doing that again. <laughs> uh, but I was just going to say that, as regarding the competition, uh, I think a, a great show format to emulate is what they do over in Telford in the yeah. UK. Uh, have you guys been there? I have not, but I know the SIGs and the, and yeah, the displays just, they have. It's just this great high five in time of all these SIGs displaying their stuff. You have private individuals with collections. Country and, representation, even. Yeah, and that, you know, clubs from the Czech Republic or Poland or whatever, but that's the bulk of the model show yeah. and oh by the way they do have a contest which is really cool but it's like it's up in a side gallery and it's 
it's maybe three or four hundred models, but the bulk of the model show is actually that exhibition. And I think it's a similar thing. People just love browsing that and seeing people's life work, basically, in modeling. I think that's great. Yeah, you get the, the strong points of the inspiration, the collaboration, but without the competition. So, Jim and, and John, I think maybe this is a question for both of you. Maybe start with John. But, um, John, do you, you see this as maybe other shows adopting a similar format and then maybe kind of de-stressing competition in favor of just showing? And if, if not, how can we make that happen? Geez, you're asking the IPMS politician the toughest question in the room for crying out loud. But no, I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, it's a tough question. You know, some Nats have been successful in the past of having display-only categories. But unfortunately, when it comes to the national convention, a lot of that space is dedicated to the competition. And unfortunately, the dem and the, you know, the, the exhibition aspect of it kind of falls to the wayside. Now, I will say it really falls upon the show organizers. And Chattanooga is a great example Mike Moore and his team emphasized like, hey, we don't want this to just be a convention. We want it to be an exhibition. And they made an effort to have a large portion of the contest room and specifically the front of the contest room as that area for display. And I think that's really critical and something that IPMS can do as an organization is help those facilitators of the show to understand like, hey, this is something we'd love to see as well. And to emphasize it up front, because a lot of times the display categories are in the back or you never get to see them or they're in a side room. Now, sometimes that's just the, you know, you're just a victim of the location. But if you have the opportunity, I would love to emphasize, you know, let's let's try display only and and bring those different groups together. Like you said, whether it be countries, uh, special interest groups for maybe you only build U.S. Air Force, your groups there or Tiger Tanks or anything like that. There's a huge opportunity for it. It's just getting the right mindset and making sure the show is set up to succeed for that type of, uh, you know, that aspect of it. I'll, I'll pass it over to Jim. Well, and I don't think we're going to change the way IPMS things are done, but I'm going to repeat what Tim said is approach your local museums. Yeah. And, and, you know, I you guys had somebody on who just started a, a contest in a museum in Texas, I think it was, yeah. an armor thing. Well, let's look beyond the contest thing and just do a display, do an outreach and approach your local museum. And if you need help, just call 1-800-JIMS-FRANCHISE-MODEL-SHOW <laughs> and I'll provide you. But no, seriously, um, I would just like to see if anybody is ever interested, contact me. Um, I am a big fan of display. I want to exhibit the hobby ra rather than compete. And I think we just need to change our view on that. And I'm not saying contests should go away. There's lots of contests. Let's have more displays. Uh, and even something as simple as a couple modelers doing it in their local library. You know, let's just outreach because there's a lot of, as I sort of say, civilians out there who might not know it's there and might get excited by this. And we always have people coming through wanting to talk about it. And yeah, we're unique because we're in the land of Boeing and there's a lot of aviation here, but you can replicate this in the sci-fi world or in the oh, yeah. um, armor world. And as far as future, I just want to keep the show running well. I want to expand the models. Uh, I want to be inclusive of all modeling. Um, and I think we do a pretty good job of that. And I just want to keep on keeping on. I'd love to bring the make and take back. And I'd like to get 2,000 models again. Um, and that's the other thing, just to talk about this. I don't think there's many shows outside the Nats that do 2,000 models in the United States. Um, 
I think our I think our IPMS show might have broke a, a thousand, and it's pretty big. So we've got a lot more on display, a lot more to look at, and I think that's the approach. Well, if people are only bringing their latest and greatest, by definition, you're going to have a smaller turnout. And I think what we do here it just it brings out more models because you see stuff that some guy did 50 years ago, yeah. which uh, is kind of neat to see. Yeah, and I think one of the important things you have here, too, is it's free. You know, you, you encourage modelers to show their work and share their love for the hobby. You bring a box in, you get free admission to the museum, and you can already see the effect it has on museum attendance. I mean, we walked in, and there was a line out the door right 30 minutes before the museum opened. And they were all chomping at the bit to get in here, and I'm pretty sure they all made a beeline to the museum hall where all the models are displayed. So... I think that's a great winning combination, and it's awesome that the museum supports you. You know, we had an opportunity to meet the curator, Matthew, and he is a huge proponent of the show, super positive, and just a really good guy. And that type of mentality and positivity, you know, really spreads like wildfire to everybody. And everyone here has a smile on their face. Everybody's having a good time. Kids are engaged. Parents are engaged. And, and like you said, maybe they walk away and build a model after this, and they bring it next year. All right. Come to a club meeting or, you know, who knows where it goes after that. Yeah. This, the the early version of this show in the mid-90s is how I found out about the local clubs. You know, I, yeah. I was a lone wolf modeler like a lot of guys are and found out, hey, there's people like me out there. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it goes to show too, you know, not only the physical location, but the virtual presence as well. We've we've tried to do a good job promoting the show. We've met some members here that heard Jim on our podcast talk about, hey, there's a show. And they're like, whoa, I'm in the area. And then, you know, sharing it on different Facebook groups that are modeling centric. And every photo I post to this place, they're like, I cannot believe there's a show here. And it's absolutely astounding. I should point out too that uh – one of the big supporters of our local hobby community is Emil Minerich up the hill. and So good. We uh, went there yesterday. <laughs> and he's, you know, like the last of the old time hobby the shops old around here. There are some hobby towns around and those are great. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Emil's the last of the old style guys with, the, you know, the second hand or third or fourth or however many hand collections in addition to the latest thing. And he's been a great supporter of our club, uh, all our clubs. Uh, in the area over the years so thanks to emil yeah i was going to mention uh, skyways you know the having a hub you know location model shop like that really really helps yeah, as well I, I call it the cheers bar of the local hobby community without the alcohol and oddly i call it the clubhouse so yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly well tim jim thank you so much this is a great show we're excited uh to come up and be a part of it and participate and uh, we're gonna record some other audio and then we'll kind of have a wrap-up as a as a podcast episode but continued success it's a it's a marvelous show and well well done thank you we, we appreciate you guys coming out and i apologize for the wrong podcast <laughs> paraphernalia here <laughs> well thank you for having us and thank you for promoting us and like i said just enjoy the hobby this is supposed to be fun and if it's not fun you're probably doing it wrong all right, Scott and John from the Plastic Posse podcast here again at the Model Mania show at the Museum of Flight. And we are very, very fortunate to have a very special guest here with us today. 
Uh, Rick Lawler. Rick, it's great to talk to you again. Hey, Scott. Hey, John. Well, it's been my pleasure. It's been a fantastic day. I really appreciate the heads up letting me come up here. My home course is not too far away from Seattle, so my pleasure to come up here and visit with you folks all day and have some great times. We had a we had a, a, a really the good fortune, uh, John and I, of participating in a social media uh, roundtable as a seminar. And uh, John, I think that was a lot of fun, and we got to hear from Rick as well. Yeah, you kind of cornered him as soon as he walked in, so he didn't really have a choice, and you still owe him a few drinks. Uh, but yeah, it was a good time. Jim Bates organized a, a little segment up here, and there were some great questions from the crowd that talked about kind of how we got started, what keeps us motivated, how long it takes, and you know the ins and out of social media and modeling. So I, I thought it was a really fruitful conversation and very thankful that Rick was kind enough to step in. Uh, he didn't really have a choice, I guess, because Scott wasn't going to let him leave. So, uh, But no, it was it was really, really good. Yeah, and uh, Rick, uh, you know, we've had the opportunity to talk, obviously, on the podcast before, but it's awesome to be able to shake your hand and walk around the the show and uh, kind of get your thoughts on, on models and everything. So what do you think about the modeling that you saw today? Having just come up from the floor with Scott, especially, we walked through some of the tables, and I've got to say the level of craftsmanship, expertise, call it what you will, there are amazing models down there. And the, the opportunity um, to talk to some of the modelers who are, put, who are presenting on the, the table and get into a little bit of what motivates them, how they work on their techniques. Um, all of that is, you know, that, that's the best part of modeling because, as we all know, this modeling is a kind of a, a solo project. And you may show it here and there, like John said, a little bit on social media. But to be able to talk to uh, the modeler themselves have them express their ideas, what their, you know, their techniques were to, to achieve these finishes, what their trials or tribulations might have been. You know, that, that's when this whole thing comes to life and we really become that, that tight-knit community. Yeah, it's incredible to be able to collaborate and to uh, walk around with, a, you know, a master modeler like yourself and, and get your thoughts. Um, John, you know, um, you've had kind of the chance to do the same thing walking around, but um, what have you uh, seen on the show today that kind of inspires you? Yeah, so one of the people that stuck out to me was Cobra Pla, super nice young gentleman. He was he actually came up with us on stage. Um, he's on Instagram. We'll be sure to share his profile. But man, his stuff is really good. I, I, I'm, I'm really shocked. And he talked about his brief history and modeling and how he's stepped up and pushed the weathering and airbrushing. And, and what I love is the Easter eggs he puts on all of his models. He'll have a Cobra, you know, the symbol from G.I. Joe or Cobra, the name integrated into the livery or markings of his stuff. So I think he stuck out a lot to me. And then I also love all the fire trucks too. I am going to uh, sabotage the interview at this point, And I want to talk about a new book um, that we have received recently. It is actually a book uh, by Rick Lawler, and it is called With or Without. This is just an absolute beautiful book. It's, uh, I think it, uh, Rick told us it took a couple years of his um, uh, you know, life and time to get this thing done, but um, we're gonna let Rick talk here in a second. But first, John, um, what an amazing book. I mean, beautiful color pictures, incredible layout. It starts off with um, an introduction to Rick and who he is. There's a gallery of his work. What an incredible concept um, and execution for the book, much like Rick's uh, model. Yeah, I think the best part is, is I'm in it. So that's always good. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. It was uh, when we met for the first time in person in Chattanooga. But going back to the book, 
absolutely awesome. I really appreciate the topic with or without. And, and I love that it goes through different types of with or without, whether it be aftermarket, whether it with be primer or top coating without an airbrush. So I really appreciate the different themes you have in here. And I think it's a great book, not only for advanced modelers, but those modelers just getting into the hobby, looking at, okay, hey, what can I do straight out of the box? What can I do if I don't have this specific tool or I don't have this aftermarket? I think this book certainly shows that. And what I also really appreciate, and I think it goes back to what Scott says, I love reading about scale modelers and their history, how they got in the hobby, you know, how they think, and also a gallery of their work. And this book perfectly captures it. So I feel like I have a piece of Rick now in my collection and I'm always interested to learn about, you know, my friends and, and it's, it's awesome. I, I really enjoy it and uh, I can't wait for you to autograph it. <laughs> so Rick, maybe in, in your words, um, you know, tell us a little bit about maybe the concept behind with or without, and then and then maybe um, your experience with putting uh, such a beautiful manual together. Well, thank you guys both for that really nice glowing review of the book. Um, so, with or without, the concept came to me. Um, it wasn't my concept. I'll be quite honest about that. Fernando, who is head of AK, suggested it. Um, he's been looking for me to do a book for a, a period of time, and 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 decided well. Here's an idea. What do you think of this? And quite honestly, I wasn't quite sure um, exactly what he meant. And so I had to think about it for a while. So some of that time was really just pondering how to approach this subject of with or without. He gave me a few examples. And and so once I got started on it, then it became, I, I took it as a challenge. Um, there were certain things that I thought could be obvious. Um, and I think the Hetzer, the first chapter is probably the most obvious of that, which is a kit built out of the box and then a kit that's built with all sorts of aftermarket products and with a little bit of scratch building and just to really bring it up to a, a more professional level. So that's that's kind of the obvious obvious one. Then after that, I got a little bit stuck to be, you know, to be quite frank, um, how to approach with or without in a creative manner that would maintain interest throughout because don't want to do the same project over and over again. And I also wanted to be able to demonstrate different uh, products and techniques and skills and, and processes throughout. So I tried for each chapter to highlight a different avenue or different aspect of our hobby and really focus in on that and, and limit myself to, to those particular themes of whatever that might be. So for instance, uh, with or without, there's a chapter on has a couple of stugs side by side that are finished without a paintbrush. So how do you paint those with a, a good finish? And so I have two examples there. One is done with hand painted with a brush, more of a typical way. But at the same time, let's try something brand new in the modeling market, which in this case were the AK weathering pencils. And I wanted to see if I could put together a soft edge, mimic an airbrushed type of a finish using those pencils. And so it would give a modeler who does not have an airbrush or doesn't have a lot of experience with an airbrush, uh, two examples of a different way to finish a model without the airbrush. The Panther that's in there, once again, with or without, trying to be a little bit creative here. In this case, I just wanted to show two paint schemes or I wanted to highlight painting in total, but two paint schemes allowed me to do that, one without camouflage and one with camouflage. And that allowed me to take a panther that was in the factory setting. So you've got your primer colors, a little bit of raw steel on the turret. And then I just kind of made up a story here. Well, this 
and it's actually the the one that's in the the factory is actually fairly he- heavily weathered because late war, dirty, grimy. They're trying to get them out. There'd be a lot of factory dust and dirt on it. And then I take that same panther in my story and move it forward a few months. So it's got this camouflage. And now it's sitting someplace probably on the Eastern Front. It has its factory camouflage on it and it has some dirt and wear effects. So it's with or without paint, so to speak, with or without camouflage, so to speak. But it's just a creative way of addressing those subjects. And uh, there's, a, there's a model in there that is one of my favorite pieces of yours. And, and we touched on this just a little bit when you were with us before. But I'd like to talk about your greyhound and sort of um, you, you you made a commitment right from the offset of that project to really use the pencils. And you even got creative and started using the pencils in ways that I'd actually never heard of. But maybe you could talk about um, the finished work and your approach on that greyhound. Yeah. So the greyhound, which is the final chapter in the book, it's I think it's titled without with or without. I think it's. With or without everything, as John is pointing the page to me here as he's flipping through the book. So it's really with everything, so to speak, not a lot of without. Um, by the time I got to the to the final parts of this, this book and putting these presentations together, of course, the ideas could have gone on infinitum as to with or without interiors, with or without wheels on it, with or without primer before you do painting, whatever the case may be, but I wanted to keep it interesting. But when I got to the final chapter, I really kind of felt like there was, I needed a, I wanted a project that pulled everything together. We had already discussed pencils. We'd already discussed various painting techniques. We'd already discussed photo etch, some aftermarket products and things like that. And so this was the project where I can use the constraints that had already been set aside at the beginning of the of the chapters, so the first chapters of the book, and then pull them all together in combination for the final chapter, and let's see where this gets us. So when it's with everything, well, yeah, it's with everything, but there's still some constraints there. So back to your point about the pencils. We'd already introduced the pencils earlier on, especially on the Panther chapter and the Stug chapter. Again, trying to find different avenues of using these same tools, the pencils in this case, how can we change the techniques or the finishes or how can how far can we push this where 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 can we go where can we explore new worlds as captain kirk might say a lot of pencil work in more of the traditional sense that i had learned and accumulated the knowledge over the course of working on this book you know versus you know say that might be wetting the surface or wetting the pencils or even using the shavings and then as you mentioned the next step for me was i needed a dusty technique or dusty appearance and so let's see why not airbrush them? So make the slurry out of the airbrush, the slurry out of the pencil shavings into an airbrush fluid. So just dissolve it in water, and let's see what happens. And it it worked, you know. And and you know, in retrospect, why wouldn't it work? You just shooting some sort of a acrylic paint more or less through an airbrush. But I'd never done it before. I've never seen anybody else do it before. So it was a little bit of exploration, a little bit of pushing the boundary of at least those tools to try to get a technique that I was looking or, or a finish that I was looking for at that point in time. And I think it was fairly successful. And again, it, it gives you or gives the modeler uh, another idea or maybe another avenue of I don't have maybe weathering enamels or oil paints, but I want this dusty effect, but I do have these pencils. Here's another idea. Here's a way we can try to do that. Well done. I mean, it's it's just beautiful, and the effects that you got are, are really, really terrific. 
you know, as we spoke um, earlier about some of the other chapters, the side-by-side approach, that concept of with or without, that comparative, you know, measurement for the eye to take a look and say, I don't have an airbrush, but here's option A and here's option B. I think there's a lot of power, especially because it's accompanied by beautiful, large photographs and lots and lots of of notes and subtext on those photographs as well. So I think it's going to be really, really helpful for a lot of modelers to not only see your work, but maybe take the challenge themselves of trying a model without something that they're comfortable with and going outside that box. Yeah, I think that last point, Scott, is in my mind, well, two points I want to make here, but that last point in particular is I hear from a lot of modelers who are afraid to mess things up and they get to a point, you know, maybe they've they've built their model and they're afraid to paint it because they're afraid to mess it up, or maybe it's painted and they're afraid to weather it because they're afraid to mess it up. And I th- I'm hoping that there's a little bit of courage in these pages to just go for it. Because, you know, and I've said this for years and years, it's only plastic. And the end of the day, if it goes into the garbage bin because you just can't stand it, then it goes in the garbage bin, you're out 30, 40, 50, whatever dollars it might be, and you start again. But more importantly, you've learned something. You've either learned what to do or what not to do. And it might not have turned out correctly at that particular time, but I guarantee you that those lessons learned one way or another are going to suit you well as you move forward. So I hope there's a little bit of that kind of go for it-ness inside this book. It's not set up to be some sort of a master modeler's series of books. This is not, you know, look at all these pictures of these master modeler pieces and aspire to it. This is, I'm hoping a little bit more of a journeyman blue collar type of a, what would be the proper word, journey, or I don't know if that's the right word, but approach into, I love building models. You know, this is me as a modeler, I love building models, models, and how am I going to try to get to that next level? And how am I going to do it? John mentioned, I think it was, the, I think it was you, John, that mentioned the biography in the middle, in the beginning here. And it starts with my roots in terms of building models. Well, I grew up in a very small town, a very rural setting, alone on the top of a hill someplace. And so I had to make do with a lot of whatever it was that was in the garage or around the yard or in the forest around me or with what little allowance I might have if I traveled once a month to the hobby store. That is kind of the approach that I tried to take in this book here. It's like you don't have to have everything at your fingertips. There's a lot of everything out there. Just need to repurpose it sometimes or think about it in a new and different and a unique way. And often those are those moments that will make you and your signature stand out because all of a sudden now you are doing something that is unique and different and will give your models that personality that I think we're all looking for as we work on our models. Yeah, I think it's really important what you said there about personality. And you can certainly see your personality in every model, but as you mentioned, you know, you're taking mediums that you wouldn't typically use in some way, shape, or form. And still, like the example with the pencils and using it for dust, I'm looking at different ways you're using oil paint to fade things and and create different types of effects with traditional materials for that matter. And I think you hit the nail on the head here where this book truly shows your style and you can see even the evolution of your style. I love the gallery and what you include is the dates in which you completed models. And you can see that evolution throughout your modeling career and the use of not only material, but techniques as well and how you've 
you've grown. So again, it's, it's a really a compendium and, and really a biography of who you are as a modeler and until, and tells a great story. And, and I really look forward to reading the book again. I, again, I, as I mentioned, I think the biography section up front, the profile of who you are kind of in talking about your family and showing your, your kids, it's, it's just really, it's beyond modeling and it, it's just a really good story and, and something that, uh, you know, I take joy in reading, not only for the content in which you're showing and explaining, but you as a person and, and appreciating your background and, and how you've evolved. Yeah, John, that's a great point. I think um, we get back to a couple of things telling a story, but you mentioned his, his biography and it's the context. And, you know, Rick, you were actually asking a couple modelers down there that same question, like, okay, these 10 models are yours. Um, help me understand, you know, which was the oldest modeler here and what's or model here and what's the newest model. And um, I thought that was an interesting question and the responses you got were pretty insightful. Yeah, this this model show that we're attending today is it's unique in, in that regard in that it's not a competition, it's a show. And so the models are on display. And so the the modelers can present however many models they want to from their collections on their table and they're all marked by the author and so you really get to see a really nice broad perspective of their work and you know i think one of the modelers has maybe a hundred different armored tanks down there something like that to go back to the cobra fellow that that john was referring to earlier i had a very nice conversation with him and that was exactly the conversation the question i asked him is He's, I think, about 27 years yeah, old. Yeah. And he had a collection down there of maybe two dozen models, something like that. And they're all Gundams. And, you know, I'm not familiar with Gundams per se. I'm not one of those guys who's, who's deep into that. But I certainly appreciate his modeling because the modeling is top notch. But I asked him that same question is, which one of these is your early one? Which was the most recent one? And... Once he did that, we started walking through his process of, of his growth as a modeler. And that was super interesting. You know, here's the point after these first three or whatever it was, here's where I got an airbrush. And so then you see the evolution of his airbrush on the next four or five models as he learned how to use his airbrush. Super neat, super important. Here's where I learned, you know, to use weathering powders and pigments and things like that. To me, that is the most interesting part of modeling is, again, it's the personality part of things. And I appreciate what you say, John, where you can look back at my gallery and see my evolution of a modeler. Um, and I like to see that in other people's works as well. And that's, you know, we, we did that seminar earlier today on social media. That's one of the nice things about social media is that if people have posted over a period of time, you can look back through their catalog their, of, of, of works over the past number of years, however many years that they've decided they wanted to post their works. And you could see their evolution. And I appreciate that. I know that, John, you're a fan of Adam Wilder's, mm -hmm. and you just talked to him about that T-34 a couple of weeks ago. Naked Desperation. Naked Desperation, absolutely. That's a very early model in his collection, yet it still speaks to you. Oh, yeah. And, and But the style on that model is so much different than the style on the models that he's working on now. Mm -hmm. So how do you go from that to where he's at now? Well, you start following that evolution, that's the change in personality, and that's when people become, or modelers become unique in their presentations and dev develop their own skills and, and, and personas. Um, and to me, that's the, that's the cool part about our hobby and what we do. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Well, speaking about evolution, um, I guess as we, as you've wrapped this book up, and it's a, and and uh, we'll talk a little bit about where uh, modelers can find this. But what did you learn from this project? And the next time that you are going to approach something like this, what would you maybe do differently, or what would you like to do that you didn't try in this particular book? Oh, that's a hard question. Um... What I let's let me start with what I wish I would have done differently on this one is hit it a little bit harder from the beginning. I think I mentioned this earlier on that I took quite a bit of time wrapping my head around this concept. And I think that if I would have spent a little bit more effort and concentration and enthusiasm in the beginning, I would have this the project wouldn't have taken so long, it wouldn't have taken nearly two years. Granted, a lot of those two years were just me procrastinating, but, you know, it's still, it was still on my brain for two years, and I didn't necessarily like that weight on my brain. What did I learn? I learned that, and, and this is going to, I feel like I'm at the Academy Awards right now. I like this, I'd like, I'd like to give thanks will, to my, my... You will start playing music. Yeah, okay. I'd, I'd like to give support to, you know, thanks to my supporting cast and crew and the director and all that stuff. But what was absolutely amazing especially as the book started coming together and it really started coming together this last fall so maybe august september of 2021 is is when everything was really starting to come together all the projects were done we were putting the gallery photographs together um, we were going through the editing process and the team of people around the world that it took that helped support and put this this book together, I, I had no idea. I had no idea that those resources were going to be coming to bear on this. If I do this again, if I do another book at some point in time, that is going to be one of those comforting sort of things in my back pocket, knowing that I'm not doing this by myself. And I didn't know that. This is my first book. I had no idea really how the process worked other than I worked for a company that asked for a book and were supportive, but I had no idea of really the weight of support that is behind the scenes. If I were to do this again, I would take full advantage of those resources much earlier on. Yes, I have to do the content. I have to write the articles and all that stuff. But there's so much that these other folks, very talented folks who are just as invested in this project as I might be, who are willing to help and able to help and offer these things that I can't do. You know, as as the book was started coming together and I was getting the proofs back, every every revision, I would just go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how nice this is looking. Then the next revision would come back and it was taken up another notch or so. The book, as it came out, as, as it sits here in the physical form, I had never seen this actual version of the of the book. The front cover is different than the last version that I okayed. <laughs> the back cover is different than the last version I okayed. So, you know, all these things continually and over time being tweaked and tweaked and tweaked by myself and by a team of editors, a team of layout artists, a team of graphic designers, all these people. And I, 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 like I said, I couldn't have done it without them. And I wish I would have known that they were in my back pocket early on. You mentioned the project taking like two years. I mean, many of our small group of friends, we follow your work on Instagram. And it's funny because you, you know, you post work on there and we see it and then it doesn't go to print. 
and we're like, there's something going on behind the scenes. Like we were watching you you post teasers of the Panther. I remember I'm like, what is going on here? And then there was with the MA Greyhound as well. And then I think right when it, I remember the day it was announced by AK, uh, there was a group of us and I think it was Aaron said, okay, who's in for this book? And literally like six or seven of us got together and placed an order that day for the book because, you know, we, we, we appreciate your style and, and, and we love to support you. And, and this is a fantastic book, but it goes back to like, we're all waiting, like when, what's going on with Rick? There's some work going on behind the scenes. And when this dropped, we were all super stoked. We made a huge order from AK direct from Spain. We didn't even wait for it to get here in the States. And, uh, you know, we, we honestly can't stop talking about it. I know a lot of them wish they were here. And from, from their little chat on Facebook to you, they say thanks. They love the book. Uh, they love everything about it. And they find it very inspiring. Tell us where everybody can uh, pick up a copy of this book. And then also, let's talk a little bit about uh, your propaganda YouTube channel and, and what you've been doing and maybe what you have planned for that. Well, I wish I could be super specific as where the book is available, at least here in the States. I know it's going to be at all your favorite hobby sh- stores and online stores soon. Um, I talked to Spain about two weeks ago about this very subject because the book was released. Mm-hmm. I got sent some copies for review samples that is sent to you and some other folks. But beyond that, I, I, I really don't know right now. I do know you can order it directly from Spain. I think John can attest that that the shipping is quick. Like three days. Yeah, three days, something it's like so that. Fast. There's also a digital version if you'd rather go that route. So for the time being, if you don't have it at your local hobby shop or favorite web store at this point, just just go directly to Spain. Shipping's um, reasonable. And shipping's reasonable. And especially if you order other materials, yep. you know, if you make a nice order, oftentimes they offset shipping if you do like $100 or yeah. something like that. So Group orders. Yeah, group orders, get your club together, whatever the case may be. So I encourage you to probably look there first. I think it's still going to be a few weeks out. Um, I'm not sure when this podcast will actually air, but... We're, what, February 2019th right now. So, you know, I would say realistically we're looking at end of March before really the U.S. stores probably and the websites will really probably have, have their stock handy. So if you wait that long, great. If you don't, go to AK. Uh, the Propaganda YouTube page. Well, I don't know. Where should I, <laughs> where should I start? Um, okay, so last... August, I think it was, maybe it was late July, I started filming YouTube videos. And I've always used the, t- the word propaganda. I've had that for years. My website is called Propaganda. I started a blog spot years and years ago called Propaganda for no other reason, just because I was tooting my own horn. It was just showing off my own work, you know, was, here it goes. Um, I was the last person in the world that thought that I would ever do anything video-wise. I wasn't necessarily involved in YouTube, didn't necessarily watch a lot of YouTube videos, just wasn't my my game. Um, I was happy with print, do a lot of prints, print work, continue to do print work, and that was fine with me. It was really, like I said, middle of summer, I was going through a spell where it's like, okay, need to do something different, not different, just I need another creative outlet, let's put it that way. And I've got two, two kids, uh, two boys, one's 27 and one's 34. And so they're more hip to the jive than I am. And it, and I, I was, we were together or separately, but within like the same week, I can't remember exactly how it went, but in this kind of the same conversation, each one of them said, well, you should just, 
post your work on YouTube. You're already doing the work. Just video it and, and make it go. And I'm going like, yeah, right. No way. And that's, that's not for me. I don't even know how to do it. It's, it's all, you know, whatever, whatever. Well, you know, nothing like having your kids kind of give you that little shove in the ribs just to go like, hey, dad, you know, maybe you should look over here and be hip for a change. So I started looking into it and it's like, okay, you know, Martin had his video at that point. Uh, Small Soldier had his video channels at that side, that point. There's a bunch of others that have their video channels that we all follow. And I started looking into them. I'm like, yeah, there's some value here. I, I can, I, I enjoy these and I, and I watch them from time to time. And I'm, as I struggle learning how to paint figures, I'm always going to the cool mini or not f- pages or whatever these figure painting guys are, Sergio and these guys and try to figure out how to paint figures. I'm like, Okay, I'm going to take a look at this. So I rigged up my camera, figured out how to shoot video on my DLSR, turned my tripod upside down on my desk, <laughs> made this really ungangly thing I couldn't get around and started shooting a video. I think the first video is still up on that. But I kind of got the bug because not only was it a creative outlet for my modeling, but it was just a creative outlet to learn something new. It was learning how to do video, learning how to do editing. It was learning how to do the audio. A lot of the things that you've learned how to do as, as these podcasts. And that's, that's pretty thrilling in a way, you know? And so for the first time in a lot of years, because I'm old now, you know, I'm staying up past midnight because I'm working on editing software, just trying to learn how to make it work. And, and that was exciting. And so I got caught by the bug. And then the bug was, can I produce a video that actually looks good and sounds good? And what do I need to do that? So then it's researching equipment. So it's lighting. It's building a little bit of a rig so I can do overhead camera shots. And it's, you know, looking at food channels, you know, how they do cooking shows to see how they do their lighting rigs and things like that, because we're doing kind of the same thing. That's how it all evolved. You know, now we're into it however many months, half a year later. Um, I've been producing a video that comes out every Tuesday. I have been loyal to that from the very start. So August to you know February here, that's count the number of videos. I tend to do them in sequential order. So I'll do a project and we'll follow that project through somewhat like you would a magazine format where you start with the build and you go up through weathering and maybe a diorama at the end. And then I start the next project and it's been a real hoot. I've really enjoyed working on that and to kind of reiterate, like we talked about at the um, social seminar that we did earlier today, not only is it a different way to address and contact with the modeling community, the combination of using the YouTube videos or being on the YouTube platform, the Instagram platform, I do still do Facebook postings and things like that, plus the magazines. It's kind of been the almost like that last missing piece that tied a lot of the community together. And I have what I can only say has been experiencing a much more direct relationship with with viewers or subscribers, as they call them. But, you know, I have a Patreon page as well where we get a little bit more in depth and have more access. But it's it's more than just that. It's, it's more of... You know, and I think it has to do with the video format itself in that the video format for the first time, people can hear my voice for whatever that's worth. People are looking at my fingers, including my thumb, which is finally starting to heal where I smashed it, which has been in every video, you know, for the last number of months where I was changing the storm windows out and smashed my fingers. There is a bit of familiarity and intimacy and that comes along with a video that is not necessarily expressed on other mediums. 
Now, I still don't put myself in front of the camera. I don't want to see my face. I'm not quite that comfortable yet. I'm still trying to get used to my own voice on video, but maybe that will come at some point in time. But for right now, I'm comfortable sitting across the table from my viewers and trying to talk about what I'm doing more or less on a step-by-step basis. But I also try to throw in some stories or here's what I'm thinking about, or this is what I'm, the video will pass by and you'll see my hands doing cutting plastic or pouring resin or whatever the case may be. And I might be talking about something totally different, but it will all tie together on the same project because I'm just describing building this model and how I'm, what I'm thinking of. And yeah, I'm cutting plastic, of course, but what I'm thinking about is this vehicle on the Western front in a dusty situation in August of 1944. And that's maybe what I'm talking about. And then as we move towards the painting, maybe later in the chapter, you'll see those narratives start to play in, in what the video is showing. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think it's really, really an effective format that you've developed. John, um, I think what I was telling Rick earlier, I really like about his videos is he's got a very um, even-killed, pleasant voice. But when you're watching the video, it feels like you're at Rick's house at his bench and you pull up to his bench and you say, Rick, show me how you did that. I mean, that's kind of how those videos feel to me at least. Yeah. From my perspective, I, I put them in the class. They're very practical. You know, it, there's no, you know, fancy schmancy wording. It's, it's very down to earth. It's very relatable uh, is probably the most appropriate word is, you know, anybody from any skill of modeling can listen and watch them pick up something every video, whether it's a little technique or, or kind of a game shifting way of doing the hobby. Uh, that's something that's communicated with each of those segments. And I certainly look forward to them. I have the little bell that, that reminds me when they come out. So uh, I look forward to what's after the Italian gun tractor. Rick, let's uh, circle back around. Um, obviously, the book is With or Without by Rick Lawler. It's published by um, AK. Tell us uh, where we can find you on social media and your Patreon, your YouTube, all that stuff. Probably the easiest way to find me is if you just Google Rick Lawler. A lot of things come up, including my website. Um, if you go to YouTube, it's Rick Lawler Propaganda, but Rick Lawler pops it up and Propaganda, I think, props it up, pops it up pretty well as well. I think it's Rick.Lawler on Instagram. It's just Rick Lawler on Facebook. Um, they all tie together pretty good. Um, if you go to any of those sites, I have, again, this is my daughter-in-law showed me this one. It's called Linktree. So like on Instagram, you can go there and all the different sites show up on my, my profile page. So they're all listed there. So you can go behind the screen and just click on anything you want and gets you to actually even the last posse uh, podcast I did is on that link tree. It goes straight to that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rick. Thanks for coming up to the show. It was great to have you here and get to shake your hand and meet you in person. Uh, the book is fantastic. Look forward to future videos and then seeing uh, what comes next. Yeah, just echoing Scott. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to see you in person again. I hope I hope it isn't another two years before we meet and certainly keep in touch and we look forward to your next project. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Scott, first time we've met face-to-face, um, I've got to say it's 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 been a wonderful day. I, I couldn't have, you know, you mentioned, will you be in Seattle on the 19th? And I, like I said, I, I wasn't even aware that this was happening. And I think I got back with you the next day. I said, yeah, I'm going to be up there. So I'm 
more than happy that I did. It's a pleasure to meet you. You are everything that I hoped you would be, a super nice guy um, and enthusiast and a real champion of this this hobby. And so really keep that up. I really appreciate that. And John, you and I have got a history. We've met a few times. Love you to death. You did a presentation today up in front with the with the monitor and such. And I was mentioning to, uh, maybe it was Scott, I was at the time, I said, this guy should be in magazines. He does good, he does good work. <laughs> so John, I always appreciate meeting you and seeing your work. And it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much, Rick. Take care. Scott Gentry here with the Plastic Posse. Uh, once again, at the Model Mania show at the Museum of Flight in Seattle. And uh, man, what a great event. I know you keep hearing that from us, but it was really, really terrific. Um, you know, walking around the show, there's obviously a lot of really talented modelers and a lot of people that brought some amazing work today. And uh, I have one of those modelers here with me. His name is Joshua Scott. He also goes by the handle on social, me social media as Cobra Plaw. And uh, first of all, Josh, welcome. But um, you caught my eye right away. Anybody that does a beautifully finished uh, Colonial Viper from Battlestar Galactica is always going to catch my eye. Hey, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's uh, the Colonial Viper is uh, one of my favorite pieces. I'm, you know, I'm 27 years old, born and raised in Washington State. Uh, and I'm just a big sci-fi nut ever since, you know, as long as I can remember. And, you know, the older I get, the more I appreciate some of the stuff that's come before my time. And I'd like to be able to express that gratitude and just fandom for anything simple to an illustration or even just a model on the table. Well, you've definitely accomplished that. Uh, you do uh, beautiful work. You have, like you said, pre predominantly science fiction, a lot of great, great Gunpla builds as well as some Star Wars builds and stuff. But let's start with a little bit about you. So how did you kind of get involved with the group that uh, has the show here at the museum? And uh, how long have you been kind of, um, you know, I guess doing what most people would call serious modeling? Yeah, that's actually a good question. You know, funny enough, this is uh, my second show here at the event. Uh, my first one was, you know, I believe it was 2019 before the uh, pandemic. So I didn't have as much of a showing in the last one, but I was there for the whole weekend. Uh, I guess you can say I'm technically maybe a member now. I, I reached out to the group, I think, just a few days beforehand. So I just introduced myself and here's a few pieces uh that I'm going to be bringing to the event and hope to see everyone there. Awesome. Well, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, when I was a kid, modelers would usually come to the hobby by building a Spitfire or a Tiger tank or something, usually from World War II. But it seems like now, um, you know, younger and, and I'm old, you know, everybody knows that I'm an old guy, but it seems like a lot of younger modelers now are coming into the hobby the way that you are with science fiction, whether it might be like wargaming mini painting or gunpla kits or whatever. And um, it's really awesome to see somebody kind of younger coming in and, and mingling with the older guys and, and really getting enthusiastic and passionate about the hobby like you are. Yeah, it's definitely a, a great sight to see. You know, I, I definitely have a big respect for the time of, you know, just model kits and modelers before me. Uh, you know, I enjoy seeing all the work and effort. Comparing something to, say, Gunpla, for anyone who doesn't know, it's just an abbreviation to Gundam Model Kit. You know, when you look at those, you can easily buy one from the store, even like at your local Target for like, 
10, 12 bucks and put it together in like less than a day with a few stickers and less minimal work. Whereas you got these, you know, planes and tanks that are a lot more time consuming. There's you know, cements, there's puttying, there's airbrushing. So, you know, it's kind of nice to, to see the hobby, you know, evolve, but also still keep those, you know, original old school traits going on. And even for myself, uh, just looking back, even for me, I, I've only started doing the hobby for at least about five years or so. And, and you know, I went into basics, you know, from just snapping a, a Gundam kit together. And again, it was just out of the box, trying to clean up sprues and put a sticker on to having now myself going into airbrushing to fine detailing to water slide decaling and even just my work looking comparing to everyone else it, it always still just blows my mind how much more i can learn most modelers that you that you see and you talk to will tell you that uh, the perfect model doesn't exist or either that or they'll say hey if you build the perfect model it's time to go maybe get some golf clubs and try a new hobby. So tell us, I mean, um, you know, as as we kind of walk through your models and we were just speaking with Rick Lawler and he had that great conversation with you about sort of the evolution of your style as it's going. And so you, you've you mentioned you, you, you've you incorporated uh, uh, washes, you've incorporated airbrushing, you've incorporated uh, starting to fill some seams. Uh, what do you feel like are some areas that maybe uh, that you want to grow in, you know, as you do your next uh, next few projects on your bench? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, when I, ever since I've been doing the modeling and I see, you know, vehicles to tanks and, you know, even giant robots, I think the very core, you know, it was everyone's favorite 1977 film, Star Wars. You know, you, you always had everything grungy. You always had everything old and, and that kind of used. And I really, that became a really big influence just as an artist overall, even past modeling from evolving from my style like a simple acrylic wash to some Tamiya powders and you know airbrushing it is I always kind of found myself always wanting something grungy and uh and kind of dirty you know something that shows it's it's been somewhere not clean out of the factory and I think one of the big things at least for the Gundam community if you don't know one of the biggest trends that catches everyone's eye is how clean and sharp a Gundam model is and it makes sense. It's a giant robot. It's about three to five story, you know, tall robot average. So, of course, you're not going to see really anything all beat up and everything. And a lot of that even is just from great builders all the way from like Japan and Asia. And it's that big trend. So I think for me as a builder, I kind of want to gravitate to that maybe once in a while. Just do something clean and different, but not lose touch what I like doing. Of course, there was a few models here that are lit up and they're looking beautifully lit. And that's actually something I've been really wanting to get into is kind of at least look into the either lighting or maybe even bits of diorama. If it's just a tiny little base to set the scene, because my goodness, there are so many different dioramas here that really knock your socks off. And it's just like, am I even looking at a scale model? So I, those would be the, the two I want to focus on as I continue to grow. Yeah, those are some great, great uh, goals to have. LED lighting and then yeah like you said the 
the dioramas, Bill's Bill's diorama work is just oh, unbelievable. Yeah, just just really, really fantastic. Well, uh, speaking of Bill, uh, you guys were uh, with our social media roundtable that we did, the seminar. So um, tell people a little bit about your own social media, your channel, and what it is you do, and where people can find your work if they're interested. Yeah, so it was kind of funny starting up with the social media table. I honestly just went there as an opportunity just to be able to learn what the other panelists had to say about social media and truth be told i was just in the audience and one of the mcs he, he looked at me you know we're gonna get you up here too and i'm like okay well cool i don't mind talking a little bit even though i i'm not huge of a stage person or even talking so the fact that you're getting me to talk this long is impressive uh but yeah no so as as said before you know my name's joshua and i have a I'm mostly active on Instagram with the handle Cobra Plaw. Now, anyone asks, like, okay, what's Cobra Plaw? I'll just put it in general. It's Cobra, you know, Plamel, Cobra Plastic Model. If you look, I'm a bit of a G.I. Joe nut, just a tad bit. So kind of just staying unique, get people scratching their heads. So, yeah, you know, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I've had that account, I want to say maybe four or three years time has gone by so fast that it it was just that gradual growth you know as I was growing in the hobby you know my viewership and just engagement with other builders kept growing too and for me I'm not you know a big channel or anything I've at least over you know 20 at least past 2500 but all the crazy builders at least two three you know hundred thousand k it's it's immensely crazy but you know it was kind of the evolutionary thing so as i'm growing you know i I think that people were seeing my growth and i also do bits of photography too you know just off of a smartphone it's crazy how smartphones are evolving these days and even some digital editing i used to do a lot of drawing back you know when and I don't do as much now but you know I created my own logo made some stickers just kind of it was just you know organic it was grown organically to where you know I started even last year I've only been airbrushing for a year I think that was the biggest leap is finally being able to just airbrush and grow in the techniques and then I just started learning from a whole bunch of other people there's guys like Mike's Builds and uh, Sand Kingdom with a bunch of uh, photography. Of course, you're scratching your head. Who are those guys? Well, I'll just tell you, they're guys in my community uh, that I talk to. There's various people, if you look at my follows and stuff, a very big connection. So I'm hoping it will grow more. It's just really fun to just be able to just share my work, be able to, you know, get myself out there as just an artist. And I'm also very th- thankful, too, that uh, I've I managed to even pick up a few partnerships along the way, even just a big boom of like last year. So which you can find in my bio, it's in the link tree. I have that posted. So I'm very thankful to all those good people who decided to give their time and their resources to just someone like me still learning and improving. Well, that's what it's all about. I mean, this hobby is about having fun, as you mentioned, and then improving and, you know, as you, as you, you know, getting, getting better and adding new techniques, you know, and having fun along the way. For you guys out there, it's Cobra Plus. So that's uh, Cobra dash P. LA and you can check uh, Josh out over at Instagram. Uh, give him a, give him a follow and uh, check out his work. Um, he did a he's done recently a a goof model G O U F for you non uh, gunpla people. That's really really terrific. His other work is Star Wars uh, models. His, his Viper as I mentioned, really really great. He's got a great future. And uh, Josh, we look forward to seeing a lot more from you on your channel. Yeah, thank you for having me. Again, it's 
you know, definitely very humbling to be able to have this talk that we're doing right now. You know, I never would have expected to be able to sit down and do this or, you know, be a part of a panel. And it's, it's definitely a nice, you know, just, I want to say maybe just gratifying because there's at least people out there that recognize some of the younger stuff, younger generation. Because I know there's that there's kind of that uh, little bit of stigma between the older generation of modelers where some don't even consider, say, Gundam or maybe even things from Bandai as tr- real model kits. But the fact that, you know, there's got to be something to continue to grow if the hobby is going to stay alive. So I appreciate the you know time being able to talk and share a little bit about myself. Thanks a lot, Josh. And uh, man, it doesn't matter what you build. We're all doing the same stuff and uh, keep your passion for what you're doing. And like I said, we look forward to seeing uh, more and more stuff on your channel. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. All right. We are live from the show again. Right now, we're going to talk to one of the modelers that brought a lot of work. His name is Terry Moore. He's been here in Seattle for a very long time and going to the show for a very long time. So Terry, just give us a brief introduction about yourself. Hi, my name is Terry Moore. Um, I've been model building since, oh, maybe 1957. Uh, I discovered that uh, there was a model club here in Seattle uh, called International Plastic Modeler Society, the Seattle branch. And they were meeting at the Museum of History and Industry. My first meeting was in 1968, and I joined the national uh, organization shortly thereafter. Nice. That's awesome. So down on the table, it looks like you have a kind of a diverse collection of stuff. You know, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you brought here today? You know, models in my collection, uh, I... I didn't bring any of my B-17s, which is my favorite airplane. So I built, I've got a whole squadron of them at home. But I brought things today that uh, uh, I usually take the path less well-traveled. You know, all my German aircraft are in British or American markings, which, you know, captured at the end of the war. I like uh, bright color schemes, different color schemes, colors and markings that you wouldn't normally see. So, uh, you know, for example, I have no Messerschmitts or, or uh, Focke-Wolfs or anything like that. But you have a tree plume. I have a tree plugel. <laughs> That's, you know, and, and the tree plugel is a, a really terrific example. That airplane that was never flown, they, they had plans for it. Uh, it was never flown. And yet to this day, there are at least four different manufacturers that are producing kits of it. You know, the, the, the Luft 46 guys uh, are having a field day with it. And the, the particular example I bought came with markings for six different f- uh, fictional countries, you know, or fictional markings. Uh, there were a couple of Luftwaffe, Romanian, one Japanese, one Antarctic, German, and, and a few others. Uh, for my example, I chose to do uh, an American airplane. The McDonald Corporation got the plans after the war, and they were trying to compete with the uh, Convair and Lockheed Pogos. You know, the, 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 mm-hmm. the situation was the same. But, uh, uh, you know, it's going to be an April Fool's uh, article for Internet Modern. Nice. You know, so this show is, you know, Scott and I, we've been here just the last two days. And what we've seen is a, a place that is certainly popular, certainly positive, and certainly a place that a lot of local modelers have come. You know, from your perspective, could you tell us what you love about this show and, and what keeps you coming back? You know, I love this show because it's not a contest. It's just a display. And to see everyone bringing quantities of models to the show is just phenomenal. I've, I've, you know, yeah, a few of the ones that I brought have brought in the past, but uh, some of these uh, models here won't see the light of day at a contest. You know, the fact that it's a display is just truly phenomenal. You know, so there's one model on the table that I saw when I first got here and said, that would be the model I would pick to to, uh, be my favorite of the day. And that's uh, 
a model of the YC-14. Okay. It's just a beautiful model. And the, the uh, Pat Murphy did built the model and did a spectacular a job one, on right? it. Yes. Next yep. to the C-17. Next to the C-17. Yeah, I've never seen one built before. It's, it's tr- you truly did an awesome job on a kit that uh, doesn't have the best reputation. Yeah. You know, but the, the, the fun thing about this show, and I, we've been doing this for a lot of years, is to see the see the different models on display, you know, and just, oh, I like your work, or this model is spectacular, and ooh, I want to build that one. You yeah, know? Mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yep. Nice. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you've been in the Seattle area for a while. Can yeah. you give us a can you give us some context on the modeling community out here? You're a member of an IPMS club. Typically, yeah. how many members you have, and you know, just just giving some some insight into the local community because there might be someone listening from yep. the Pacific Northwest and they'd love to hear about what you have to offer in the Seattle area. Yeah. Well, you know, belong to this club, Northwest Scale Modelers, who's presenting this show today. I'm also a member of the International Plastic Modeler Society. So the IPMS Seattle chapter meets every second Saturday at the uh, Bellevue Community Senior Center. Hopefully with COVID going away, we'll be able to meet there again shortly. The meeting here, Northwest Scale Modelers meets on the first Thursday of the month after the museum closes at seven o'clock. We have a a meeting room that they are gracious to let us use. And, uh, you know, like the IPMS uh, chapter is one of the largest in the country with 140 paid members. The majority are local, but others from long distances away have joined up. And, uh, you know, so our our chapter has a monthly newsletter and displays like this uh, every month. So we, we encourage modelers to come and bring something to work on. You know, if you have a finished model, put it up on our display table and you'll be allowed to talk about it with the, in front of the group and uh, things like that. We do the same thing here at Northwest Scale Modelers as well. Awesome. So going back to yourself, really appreciate the perspective, by the way, of the local area. You know, what uh, what could we what do we see on your bench right now? You know, you have a lot of unique aircraft down there, a lot of test oriented aircraft, lots of bright schemes, lots of natural metal. Do we see that on your workbench right now? And if so, what, what's that kit you're working on? <laughs> OK, currently on my workbench, I have a, an airfix kit of the Blenheim one. Uh, it's a modern airfix kit. The new airfix kits are spectacular. It's overall black. It's very plain and ordinary, but I like the black color scheme because it's a the the particular black that the RAF used back in the day was it's kind of hard to duplicate in 48 scale. Uh, the only other aircraft on my bench is uh, I'm converting a Lockheed Vega kit into uh, an airplane that uh, Wiley Post and Will Rogers were killed in uh, up in Alaska. It's you know the the basic Vega shape is there on all the airplanes. They move the wings around and change the cockpit and stuff like that. But that's the only other airplane on my bench. So I've got to scratch build the wings. Uh, I, I have floats for it. And I have to scratch build the cockpit section because it's totally different than the Vega. So, yeah, you, you bring up a good point there. So a lot of your stuff is unique. A lot of stuff is scratch built. When you're looking at these projects and going into the scratch building aspect, are, are you using online resources? Do you have books? You know, what what is your main... I guess, source of reference? And then what tools and types of materials are you using as you build these, uh, you know, scale subjects? You know, for, for something like a scratch-built aircraft, I've used a variety of materials over the years. One model I built of the Boeing uh, Sea Ranger twin-engine flying boat, I took a piece of uh, insulation uh, styrofoam, cut it to, to basic shape, and then covered it with epoxy putty, and then ground and filed that to shape. You know, the, the technology has considerably improved since then. 
Uh, a, a lot of the scratch building I do involves sheet styrene, similar build up to the way stick and tissue models are built. You know, just build a framework and then fill it in with uh, plastic or, or whatever. I'm I'm definitely old school. I haven't explored 3D technology, but it looks like I could. You know, it might be a way to go for me in the future if I happen to be around that long. Nice. So, you know, a lot of your work, it's not small mm-hmm. and you have a lot of it. So I'm curious, you know, where, where do you keep the stuff in your house? Do you have it on display? Do you have, you know, a dedicated display room for crying out loud? Because like I said, some of your stuff gets pretty big as you're looking at the 148 scale, even higher. So, you know, just a, where do you keep your stuff and do you put it on display at home? Yeah. Well, we just we just sold our house a couple of years ago, and uh, I had a display case that was uh, eight feet wide and floor to ceiling, and I figured bring it with us when we move, and I'll put it in the new uh, model room. And unfortunately, it wouldn't fit. So uh, for the last two years, my models have been in storage. I'm, I'm working on having a new display case built, which will hold all of my models. Uh, I have probably 200 or more, oh 300 gosh. or more built models in a variety of scales, mostly 48th. And uh, I, I find that uh, since I'm getting a lot more work done more recently, that uh, I've had to hang a few models from the ceiling. So I've got a couple of B29 monogram kits uh, hanging from the ceiling. And uh, I may have to do that with my B17, a few of my B17s as well, but uh, highly anticipating having a display case. It's in my mo- workspace. I've got a, got a room dedicated to to my modeling because all my my library is there you know rather extensive collection of books and reference materials and uh you know and hopefully soon i'll find someone that can build me a display case that's awesome so here's another personal question how big's your stash when we when we were moving you know i had a i called it the garage kits because <laughs> all my kits were in the garage uh there's not room in the garage because we haven't got room for unpacking i was managed to get uh all my stash into uh, uh, closets in my model room. I got two side-by-side closets and they hold, I haven't counted the number of kits I've got it, a couple hundred, maybe 300, maybe, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I'm afraid to count them. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Where, where can people find your work? Do you have a Facebook profile that you share? Do you share it all on social media? I have a Facebook page, Terry Moore. Uh, just go to go to that page, and I, I occasionally post pictures of my latest projects. So my my defiant was on there now that I just finished, and uh, and it, I'll post pictures after I finish models. Awesome. Well, Terry, thank you so much for joining us. This show has been great. We love your work, and we'll be sure to post pictures online of your work so when this interview drops, the listeners can see your awesome work, especially the tree flugel. That's my favorite. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time. Very welcome. All right, Scott here at the Museum of Flight uh, Model Mania show, and. Things are just starting to wrap up on Sunday. Man, what an incredible experience uh, it's been. Uh, well worth the trip. I know I'll be coming back up. I think uh, uh, John feels the same way. But I am excited to be joined by our good friend uh, Jim Bates, as well as Matthew Burchett, who is the curator of the Museum of Flight. I'm going to start with you, uh, Matthew. What an incredible event. I mean, I I just can't imagine a better venue to have to inspire young people and people that maybe haven't been exposed to models or are big fans of models to have a model show like this. I completely agree. I've been building since I was probably six um, and have been in the museum biz for over 20 some odd years, close to 30, I think. About nearly 20 years in the the aviation museum biz and it's always so fun to have modelers come 
you know, I like to open up planes and, you know, because we're all geeks. We all want to know how things work. We all want to try to detail as much as we can. And so I'm really modeler friendly um, as a curator, but it's even better when you get, you know, civilians, as it were, here, because they may not have even realized, "Eh, yeah, my dad built models, you know, that's kind of. That's kind of what he did, but then they're able to see the quality that you can achieve, you know, with some some techniques and some real heavy, you know, just getting in there and doing it. So it's a lot of fun, and kids just absolutely love it, absolutely love it. And then you see so many of them walking out of the gift shop with models in their hands that dads, you know, bought them, and you know exactly what's going to happen when they get home. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, it makes total sense that you yourself are a modeler and um, you can tell that your passion um, for aviation, whether it's in one to one scale or whatever other scale, is something that's really, really important to you. That's true. I, in, I, I get asked this all the time. Are you a pilot? I'm not a pilot. I have no desire to be a pilot. I don't need another expensive hobby, but I love building models. I love that attention to detail, even if you're not going to see it. At least I know it's there. And for me, part of the fun, actually most of the fun is adding detail, you know, and getting trying to replicate in 148 scale, you know, the dial on an oxygen, an A4 oxygen walk around bottle. Why? I don't know, but it's just fun. That's what trips my trigger. And so to be able to be in a place like this, where I'm surrounded by the one-to-one scale stuff, and I can start to really look at the details, and then my mind starts whirling. Um, I remember at one point, my wife asked me, we were watching TV and a commercial came on. This was before TiVo. Commercial came on and I reached over and I grabbed a reference book and I just started flipping through it. And she was like, is there ever a time when you're not building a model, reading about a model, or thinking about a model? And I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I am no longer married to that particular woman. (laughs) But it's kind of true. The way I put myself to sleep at night is I will work through problems that I know I'm going to encounter with a model. How am I going to build this X And I just start seeing it in my head. And the next day I get up and I do it and it works. And if it doesn't work, try something else. Think about something else. Fall asleep. You know, it's it it just gets in your blood. It's kind of ridiculous. Well, Jim, I want to kind of talk with you for a minute. I mean, you are a lucky guy, you know, for a club uh, to have this kind of relationship and this kind of partnership And I see it both ways. I mean, I see it in the line of people on a Sunday morning waiting to get into this place, really helping the museum and exposing the museum to clients. And then conversely, the fact that you guys get to have your show in such an amazing location. I mean, talk a little bit about that relationship that uh, hopefully you don't take for granted. Oh, it's totally awesome. Um, and I haven't been here all that long. I've been here longer than than Matthew has. But um, the previous curator, Dan Hagedorn, was always a big uh, supporter of us. The difference now is Dan was more the, I, I want to say, the academic kind of curator. And I would say Matt is more the, the public kind of curator. So it's fun that we had a curator's choice that wasn't an airplane for a change, you know. <laughs> 
And what I'm trying to do with the show when I take it over next year is I want to expand to all genres of modeling. Even though this is the Museum of Flight, people still love to look at other stuff. But I can't even imagine how cool it is that we we get usually get to meet in the Red Barn. We, you know, have this show every year and I kind of do take it for granted. It's just what we do. And not everybody's got that. It's awesome also to be able to be in a position where I can just email the curator and get my answers, whatever I need, <laughs> um, which I've used sometimes because my daughter wants to know what songs were played in whatever room in the museum we were in. And I bug Matt and he actually takes the time to answer me, which um, and then, of course, that leads to her needing to ask 80 more questions about every, what song was in the cafe. Like, dude, no, it's not going to happen. But it's really nice to have this here. And I think the Museum of Flight also does a good job of being, um, Matt said, civilians, people who are not aviation fans. And I think one of the things aviation museums have a problem with is getting the average people. And I think you guys do a really good job of getting everybody through the door um, and even doing private events. So the business community gets to be here. And it's it's just a gem to have this place here. And we can argue if it's the largest or second largest private museum. I'll let Matt get into that. But it's just so awesome to have such a gem here in town. Plus, it's just cool. I'm sitting under a Boeing and there's an F4 over there and a Sabre. And, you know, how much better does it get than that? Well, exactly. And it, and it really feels like a part of a community, whether we're talking about the modeling community or the community of Seattle or the aviation community. But a chance for all, all these all these communities to sort of intermingle. Matt, if we could talk a little bit more, uh, give you a chance here to brag brag on the museum a little bit. I mean, tell people maybe how they can support uh, the Museum of Flight and maybe a little bit about, you know, what's the breadth of your collection? What's your goal? Maybe We are the largest nonprofit, privately owned air and space museum in the world. Um, we have over 150 aircraft spread over one, two, three, four different locations. Um, five if you count our B-52. Six if you count our Connie out front. We range from, you know, some of the very earliest aircraft that Boeing built. We are not, and I would like to repeat this, not the Boeing Museum of Flight, which is a, we get this all the time, which makes perfect sense. We're on Boeing Field. We're right next door to Boeing, but we are a private institution. We're run by a board, but we have a lot of Boeing aircraft. We have other aircraft as well, you know, and it's an amazing in-depth collection. One of my absolute favorites is our, what we call the PCW, and that's the personal courage wing. My personal favorite, just because I like military aircraft and I'm very much a, a World War II nut, um, but the PCW encompasses World War One and World War Two, and the collection of World War One aircraft that we have is amazing. Now, most of them are reproductions, but two are not. We have an aviatic that's absolutely World War One, and we have a false D-12, which fought in World War One. Um, was brought back to the United States, mislabeled as a Fokker D-7, and sat in a crate until about the 1920s. And somebody at Dayton opened it up and went, oh, this isn't a D-7. Ended up being bought by Frank Tallman, who was kind of the head pilot in Hollywood. He had his own little tiny Air Force, and it flew in many different movies during the 1920s and 30s. Ended up with Doug Champ. And right now, we are repairing and repairing placing the lozenge fabric on it. I took about a month and a half, two months to track down, not original, but reproduction lozenge fabric that was 
printed on Belgian linen and then roller printed, screen printed with rollers just like they did. And I've been able to compare the stuff that we got with a couple of swatches of original lozenge fabric that we have. And the colors are spot on. It's amazing. And so what's really exciting to me, going back to that whole model geeky, super detail-y kind of stuff, is that what's on the aircraft now is just painted cotton. That is not at all what it was in World War One. So with this linen fabric, you're going to be able to see the light coming through and see all the ribbing in those wings, which is exactly what it would have been like in World War One, And that is exciting. I mean, how cool is that? I love that kind of stuff. And now everybody else is going to be able to see it. And we can use that as a, as a teaching moment is, you know, because people are going to go, what are all those lines in there? Or why do they have these strips on the top of the wing? What's that for? Well, it's to cover the, the stitching. You know, you can go into all these different, really, to me, exciting conversations about how this was built. And where else are you going to learn that but a museum? Yeah, it's awesome to hear your passion for that. I mean, as a as another modeler, you know, hearing the the passion that we bring into our own projects, but on a, a, a much larger scale, you know, get and and then plus uh, the museum being able to share with people, whether it's you know a school bus full of full of kids or adults, or you know, even you see um, veterans walking around, and maybe some of them might have even flown in some of these aircraft. So that's really really terrific. What are some of the goals that you have uh, for the museum moving forward? You know, do you see um, acquiring additional pieces? Obviously, it sounds like the restoration is ongoing of the pieces that you have in the collection. Anything you'd like to share about your plans for the future? You know, if if you've ever been to the museum before, you know, we're kind of packed. You know, we really packed the planes in. So we're we're actually running out of space, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. You know, you want to have a lot for people to look at. But at the same time, that does kind of hamstring you sometimes if somebody comes to the front door with a really nice offer. We get offers probably about every three months, every two months. A lot of them are just not a good fit for us. We have what's called a scope of collection, which guides myself and the other collecting people, as well as the rest of the staff, as to what we collect and why we collect it. And so that makes it very easy, sadly, to say no. You know, there are a lot of times when people are like, I want to give you my dad's, all his naval uniforms. Oh, great. Was he a pilot? No. Was he on an aircraft carrier? No. Was he, what did he do in the Navy? He was on a coal tender. We're not the best fit for you, you know, because not only when we take something, we are caring for that object or those objects in perpetuity, you know, so it's a big deal to us to take something from a family member, especially when they are like, this was my grandfather's, this was my dad's, you know, he wore this in World War II in Vietnam. And it's amazing what we have in the collection. There are some things down there that I am just blown away. Uh, Just recently, we had a gentleman come in and say, hey, I've got a matchbook case and we're not talking to actually match box case. And what it was is when Quentin Roosevelt, which was Roosevelt's son, he was shot down in World War One. He's the only son of a, of a president who's ever been killed in battle. He was shot down in World War One, and everybody knew where he had landed. And so once the Allies had taken that area, there was a huge trade in souvenirs. People would go in there and they would cut pieces of fabric out of his plane, 
Well, this gentleman's father went in, cut a piece of the cowling, and then fashioned this little book or this little box where he could put his matchbook or his matchbox into it. And he's engraved on it, you know, Roosevelt Plain, yada, yada, 1918. And he wanted to give it to us. And it is, you know, it's those kind of things where you can tie it directly back to a pretty significant piece of history. But back to aircraft, because that's what people really want to know about. We, we do have plans to expand. We're getting to the point, though, where it's going to have to be one in, one out, which means that things are going to have to go into storage or they're going to be loaned to other museums. Recently, we had a Fiat G91 that had come into our collection many years ago, and it's been sitting outside for years. Um, and it had flown with the Frecce Tricolore, which is the Italian version of, say, the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds. And we knew we were never going to do anything with it. It was outside. It was kind of languishing, to be honest. So we reached out to an Italian museum, Volandia, and said, would you be interested? And they went, uh, yes, absolutely. And we said, if you guys can wangle getting it across the pond, we will put it in the container for you. And they went, done deal. And so we took about three or four months getting that thing into the container and then off it went. And it just arrived in um, Italy after about a month and a half, you know, trying to get something shipped during a global shipping crisis. I don't recommend, especially plane sized, um, but it made it in the cool. This is what made it so awesome. Not only did it go to a new home where it was going to be restored and put on display, but one of the former pilots that had flown that plane had 3000 hours and that plane was there to meet it. And that's what makes it all worth it. You know, yes, we got rid of one of our collection, but it went to a brand new home and it opens up space for us to get something new. You know, F-15s are going to be coming around here pretty soon. And I am really excited about getting an F-15. Don't know where it's going to go, but if we can get one, I'm going to vote yes. First world problems. Where's the, where's this eagle going to go, right? Eagle it can go in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk about maybe outside of the show, Jim, how the club continues to help support Matt and the museum and ongoing displays and, and things like that. How, how does that relationship kind of they work don't. on an ongoing basis? <laughs> well, we have a dis couple display cases here at the museum that we're always putting models in, and we have rotating displays that we do three times a year. Currently, it's Pearl Harbor. The next one coming up is called Heads of State, which will be models of aircraft flown by, um, or not flown by, but with the heads of state have flown on. Occasionally, the museum will approach us with kind of weird projects. Uh, one that I think still on display is they got a Lockheed Electra that is in the markings of Amelia Earhart's plane, and they wanted to depict the history of the actual airplane and had us build models in each of its history. And then the most interesting one, and this is a while ago that I participated in, is they had a, a program for people who are visually impaired, and they had us build a bunch of models and paint them black like the World War II uh, recognition models that they can give to the visually impaired so they can kind of feel what an airplane looks like. And then we, we do the show here. We do a mini show. Uh, in the fall, and I just hope Matt's not thinking up new things to put us to work on. Yeah, exactly. I just hear uh, Matt saying it's too late. Well, Matt, um, before we uh, start to kind of wind down on this, want to kind of go back to a, a question we kind of skimmed over. How can people help the museum? Uh, you know, what kind of memberships do you offer? 
you know, sponsorships, anything like that. Like how can the people who are interested in your collection and the preservation of aviation history really help the museum? Absolutely. You know, the the great thing about the museum is we've got all sorts of different levels of membership. I mean, student all the way up to, you know, thousand dollars a year kind of thing, always looking for donations, whether it be monetary or artifact wise. If you're interested in donating an artifact to the museum, you can just email curator at museumofflight.org. I would recommend going to our website, which is museumofflight.org. There we've got all sorts of pages on donations. You know, if you want to do a monetary donation, if you want to do a stock donation, whatever. All of that goes to help keep the doors open and the programs running and all this kind of stuff. You can designate where your, your donation would go. Um, and as long as we're kind of repping the museum, I'm going to throw my hat into the ring and say, if you're interested in kind of a different take on aviation, uh, tune into our YouTube program called Curator on the Loose. Um, and that's where I take one of the artifacts here at the museum. Recently, we did one here at King County on the ARFs, which are the Aircraft Rescue Firefighters. So we started the episode with our 1942 Kenworth fire truck and kind of took a look at that 1942 technology and then said, you know, I wonder what's going on today down here at King. And so then we went and we talked to the King County guys and uh, we got to play with all of their equipment and run around in their trucks and blow water on stuff and try out their gear. It was a ton of fun. So we, we've done a lot of those videos and we're continuing to do so. They run about 10 to 15 minutes a piece, so it's not going to be a huge time suck for you. And there's just a, a lot of fun. So take a look on those. People come down and give their time. Ton of volunteers. We've got an amazing volunteer program. Um, again, go to our website and just look up volunteers. You can also become a docent. We've got a difference between the, the volunteers and the docents. The docents are the, the people that hang out here on the floor with their blue jackets on. And they know everything there is to know about our collection. It's impressive. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you for, um, you know, hosting this event. It's fantastic. Um, just can't recommend it enough. And uh, anyway, it's been great to talk to you, Jim. Same thing. Um, continued success on the show and for the museum. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Scott, for leading us into that awesome segment. As you see, these people are passionate, dedicated, and overall just great individuals. Their love for the hobby is easily shown during these interviews, and it was so nice to meet them, catch up with old friends, and certainly meet new ones. So we hope to have some of them on again at some point in the podcast, especially Cobra Plaw. Joshua is such a nice guy, kid even, and his work was fantastic. And it was really great to get to know him. And we'll post his Instagram handle on our Facebook page because... He's somebody that you should follow because of his great work. And he shares awesome uh, work from the community as well. So I've certainly been able to get more, you know, follow more people through his profile. With that show closed, there's a show coming up this weekend when we're recording on the 26th. It'll already been passed when we drop this episode. But TJ, talk us a little bit about that show. 
Yeah, so you, uh, you're talking about the Old Dominion Open, which is down in Richmond at the uh, Raceway RIR. I don't think that's what it's called anymore. But yeah, it's tomorrow. So by the time everyone hears this, it had been passed. So hopefully I get to meet some of you guys, some of the listeners that come down. It's going to be really fun. As of tonight at 9 o'clock at night on Friday, I have not yet decided what models I'm going to bring. You're only allowed to bring eight, one per category. Um, and as someone who builds a lot of allied armor, that kind of <laughs> makes it difficult for me. And a lot of science fiction also makes it difficult. So I'll narrow them down, print out my sheets and, and get going. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully the turnout's good. I'm sure it will be. That's why they're limiting the number of entries because they're worried the turnout's going to be massive. Apparently it's one of the larger shows in region two, which is the region that I am in. So yeah, hopefully I, I get to see some of you guys down there. And you're catching up with the geeks as well, right? Of course they will be down there. I think they're going to have a table. Um, I think that's what Darren said. I will not have a table. I'm not doing anything. I don't even think I'm going to judge. I think I'm just going to kind of mingle and, and probably spend some money. And uh, yeah, it's, it should hopefully be a fun time. And then I think steal. we're going to go out to get some food afterwards. Ste- steal that KB2 from Darren. Yeah, I'm going to make sure he brings it and I'll just <laughs> accidentally uh, you know, fall off the back of his truck. That's right. Well, that's awesome, TJ. And within two weeks of today, we will also have Commies Fest here in Denver. I'm so excited to see you, Doug, Scott. We have Jim Bates flying in. Ivan, you'll be here in spirit and we will come to you live, probably half in the bag, but certainly have a toast for you. And for everyone, that's going to be on March 12th at the Arapahoe County Fairgrounds Event Center in Denver, Colorado. It's slightly east of it towards kansas out in the flatlands not too far away from my place but we'll be there in force we're gonna have a table and then also we're gonna have funfetti cupcakes in the theme of the show which is orange and we're not joking about funfetti so please stop by say hi grab a cupcake and let's have some fun yeah john will also have some plastic posse swag and also some tank craft swag and we will be giving away a, a tank craft matter two at the show as well so stop by and and say hi to us i got a box of value gear i'm gonna bring as well that steve was so kind to, to send our way so really gonna be a good show to meet all our listeners so john before we move on i wanted to also i mean we've talked about the venue at the museum of flight there but kind of wanted to talk about their format, you know, the no contest format display. What what did you think of that? Because I thought it was a really unique approach. And, you know, with over 1,700 models um, on display, seems like it's uh, definitely attracting a lot of attention. Yeah, you know, it's the first show I'd ever been to where it was display only. You know, every other show before that was a contest. And to be honest, I didn't miss anything from the contest. The point of the show there was to spread the joy and love of the hobby and then connect with other modelers. And and that's certainly what we did, I, you know, with without even any vendors as well. So display only, no vendors. I still, I could have spent another day at the show because of the museum, because of the people we met and because of those conversations that we had. It was it was a great experience and I would love to see more kind of display only. And we kind of had this discussion at the show where it's, it's a great approach and it really comes down to kind of the show organizers and the space available. I think we were very lucky in Chattanooga Nationals back in 20, oh boy, I think that's 2019. I'm sorry if I'm mistaken. That Nationals was great because they had a large display section in front of the contest. Usually display is kind of put in the back where at Chattanooga was up front, but at the Seattle show, it was right under the main M21, D21 Blackbird right there on the center floor. So it really made for an impressive display. It was absolutely fantastic to see people literally bring their collections. Eric from the Seattle area, I think he had over 235th scale armor pieces there and the 32nd scale Lancaster and other large scale planes. So truly amazing to see 
you know, what people create. And then the guy who did all the unique uh, fire trucks as well. I thought that was one of the coolest displays. He loves red, yellow, and orange and everything weird in between. He tuned, he turned a World War II tank into a, like a, a robot to extinguish fire. and It looked really good. Bottom line is I like it. I think it's a great way to, again, it's an exhibition, not a contest. No one went home unhappy there. And I think that's something to, to take away um, is that literally everyone had a smile on their face. And the museum had 2,000 people a day attend the show, whether they were just visiting the museum itself and fortuitously ran into the show or went for the show itself. So it was busy. It was fun. And no one left complaining, which was awesome. Yeah, you had the great participation from modelers in Oregon. You know, our friend Doug Reed came up and was there. Shout out to Doug. It was good to see him. You mentioned all the uh, modelers that came out from Colorado. We had uh, Rick Lawler come up and spend the day. And, you know, Rick mentioned in the interview that we heard a little bit ago that, you know, one of the things he likes about the display only is, you you know, modelers tend to bring instead of one or two items to put into a contest, they'll bring their whole collection or they'll bring a large part of their collection. And you really get to see a progression of, of each modeler's work on the table. Uh, you mentioned uh, Cobra Pla. You could really see in his work a progression in his weathering and his airbrushing, you know, from his earlier works to his later works. So yeah, I thought it was great. And then the thing as a nerd that I was super happy about is, you know, uh, you take the Colpar show that we went to and now this one and science fiction is not the special table at the back of the room anymore. I think the rock stars of this show in, in many respects were the science fiction pieces. I would agree. Uh, Bill Hoffman's pieces as well, which were more than just a diorama. They were they were an art display. They were integrated into a furniture piece. They were absolutely gorgeous and something that doesn't really fit into a traditional show per se, but it was great to see things like that on display. Also, I want to tell our listeners, you know, when Rick Lawler showed up, I think he showed up, I don't know what, around noon. And as soon as he got there, uh, Scott is like, okay, you're coming up on stage. You know, welcome to the party. And just through, Rick... You know, kudos to him. He was a great sport and actually contributed great to the discussion because we had a roundtable kind of on social media and podcasting and, and just everything in the periphery of the hobby that kind of supports it. And Scott, you know, being the the, the, the gentleman he is, he uh, he drug, you know, Rick up there uh, without much trouble. And it, it was a really good chat. But it, it was funny. You know, as soon as Rick shows up, barely gets to say hi. And he's up in front of the, you know, 50 people that are sitting there just uh, waiting for him to talk. So it, it was a great discussion. And I don't think I think someone there recorded it. So I think maybe Bill Huffman did. So I'll, I'll reach out to him and see if we can at least share that video with our listeners. Yeah, it was a good time. And I'm certainly looking forward to Nats with Ivan and TJ on the line here. We're going to do a trifecta uh, armor modeling seminars, plural. So that should be a lot of fun. Ivan's seminar is going to be sold out. You're going to have people waiting, <laughs> waiting in line. I'll have groupies. Well, all the fangirls. Oh know. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He's oh, gonna yeah. throw. The, he's gonna throw the demographics way off. I was about to say all, all the fangirls at a national modeling show is unheard. It's of. Embassy Suites. You're gonna have that party room up front with the pull-out couch. <laughs> you know, just throwing ragers each night there. You're gonna have people at the front desk. At, Where's the seminar with the guy from England? Yeah. <laughs> Can I buy him a pint? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And an aluminium can. <laughs> Get some crisps for a nice appetizer. They are crisps. <laughs> they are chips. Chips are fries. We'll, we'll have them queue up in front of your room. Queue, yes. <laughs> a nice orderly queue. 
and then uh, maybe they'll throw some knickers at you. <laughs> <laughs> it, these words just sound weird coming from like with that American accent. It just it, it, it makes my lungs cringe. Like oh. <laughs> I don't even know where we are in the episode. But a, sh- a shiver went down my spine. <laughs> Save us, Doug. Save us. We are proud to partner with Tankcraft. They're a fabulous company that makes the highest quality products. They have some incredible new products coming in 2022. New mats, new products, and some incredibly cool stuff that they'll be announcing very soon. In the meantime, check out tankcraft.com and see how one of their pro modeler mats and one of their awesome aluminum glue bases can really improve your workbench. Nice try, Ivan. I caught you. <laughs> uh, John and Scott, tell us about those new T-34 tracks. Tankcraft uh, sent John and I uh, a set of their first 3D printed tracks, their T-34-76 tracks. And uh, I got to tell you, I was really, really impressed. We'll get John's thoughts on them here as well. But they assemble uh, just like the metal tracks do, where you've got the links uh, connected by a resin pin. The pin's got some, some ridges on it. They stay in. They're remarkably robust, and man, they assemble very, very quickly. John, what's your impression of them? Yeah, I would echo that. So they're really, really nice. They are no cleanup required, no drilling required, and simply slide together and then pop that pin in. I completed the whole set, I think in about 45 minutes, to be honest, and I wasn't even fully concentrated on them, but I just sat at my bench, hold them together with my finger, and slide that pin in. And like I said, we got one set. They are gorgeous, and there's enough spare tracks in it to make a, a significant run, too. So if you want to load down your vehicle with spare tracks, those are in it. But the moldings are crisp. Again, zero issues with drilling or warpage or or any of those you know issues you run into with other other types of tracks. These were very straightforward, very simple, beautifully designed, and a really nice instruction guide on the inside of the inside of the box as well. Because you know always you're like, oh, how many tracks do I need to put on each side? And instead of googling it, or um, you can see it right on the box, which is really good. So overall, I give them a ten out of ten. I will paint these up and weather them, uh, and then I'll throw them on a on a T thirty four. They are the less common type, I believe, Scott. They're for a forty two forty three version of the T-34. Yeah, they are a little bit less common, but they're they're very attractive too. They have the the diagonal directional lines on them and they're going to be at home on a lot of uh, the mid-production T-34-76s. Um, if you have any questions, kind of what vehicles they go to, you can check out the excellent T-34 modeling Facebook group that's run by Stephen Reed. And he does a review of these tracks as well and also throws a couple of kits out there that you can look at that they would uh, be perfect for. In the meantime, uh, we, we've got some Tiger One tracks headed our way. So John and I will take a look at those and uh, see what we think and then um, we're not sure what's next, but they have other other tracks coming. If any of you can join us out at Commies, we've got some of their new knife toppers that we'll be giving away, which are great. The little uh, plastic pieces you put on your Exacto knife to keep from rolling off of your bench and stabbing your foot. So that's yeah. a great product. Yeah, I already put a couple on my knives. They're they're kind of a rubbery plastic, so they're flexible, so they can fit multiple handles sizes. It's time to send a shout out to our Posse Outriders. These are listeners who support the Posse by becoming Patreon contributors. If you would like to support the Triple P and become a Plastic Posse Outrider, it's really easy. Just head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Plastic Posse Podcast. 
and set up a recurring donation there. You can donate any amount you would like, and this support helps us to offset the cost of bringing you the Triple P. The Posse Outriders for episode 40 are Mike Bird, Jeremy Elliott, Mike Tarley, Steve Baker, Mediocre Middle-Aged Modeler, Dan Nofel, Rick Lewis, Eric DeGleish, Brian McFeeters, Bruce the Model Noob, Matt O'Meara, Grant Mabry, Paul Alexander Crystal, David Wapples, Ethan Eidenmill, Jamie Adamson, Steve Schaefer, Rick Cooper, Craig Jarbo, and Jared Cowell. Well done, deputies. We really appreciate... What what do Englishmen say? (laughs) (laughs) Well done, deputies. We really appreciate your support. I'd like to bring a motion before the board that he reads those names every time. Because, I mean, just, you know, the English accent makes it better. Yeah. <laughs> Can I also ask one quick thing? And now it's time for English with Ivan. The actor's sure. name is Ralph Fines, not Rafe Fines. Thank you. Who calls him Rafe? I've ne- literally never heard anyone say how? that. How? Because it's always Americans who are like, yeah, that actor, uh, Rafe Fiennes. N- no. That's how no. I've, always heard it. I've always heard it pronounced Rafe. Always. It's, it's, no. I don't it's mind Ralph. calling him Ralph because that's how it's spelled. Thank you. I've what never heard think? anyone call him that. I feel like it's, 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 I always thought that was just an American thing. Rafe. It's like, no. I mean, maybe traitors. I don't know. But yeah. like, that's yeah. not something <laughs> patriots say. Jeez, oh man. Good Lord, I don't know. That's... According to Google, it's Rafe. It's not. What? That's what Google is saying right here. Google's I'm wrong. looking at it right now. <laughs> My, Michael, Michael <laughs> Google is never wrong. Oh, God. <laughs> you can also make a one-time donation to the Posse via PayPal. To do this, just go to our website, plasticpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. In the upper right-hand corner, just click the little heart icon. And you can donate any amount that you would like. You certainly don't have to donate, but we do appreciate your support. We'd also appreciate it if you would support us by leaving a review wherever you listen to our podcast. Five-star reviews help the Posse be more visible to people that search for modeling podcasts. And if you are on YouTube, remember to stop by our Plastic Posse Podcast YouTube channel and give us a subscribe. We have some live streams there. We just added our live stream with Adam Wilder recently. Our next live stream is coming up on Friday, March 4th, and we will be visiting with Fred Metal of Tamiya USA. Now it's time for social media shoutouts. Let's check out what caught our eye on the internet this past week. I will start, and I'm going to start with a guy on Instagram um, that goes by Phoenix Miniature Art. And what caught my eye is he just finished a large-scale Colossus figure. If you're an X-Men fan, then you know who Colossus is. He's a big, huge Russian dude that can turn his skin into metal. That's his superpower, and he's freaking awesome. I think this is a 75-millimeter figure. I've seen it before. I'm not exactly sure of the scale. It's larger, and of course, like a real miniature painter, he painted in non-metallic metal and did an absolutely amazing job because in the comic books and in the movies, he's like a shiny chrome kind of looking color when he activates his metal skin um yeah it's really sweet um i just happened to see it when i was scrolling through instagram today i've been following the work in progress pictures and the the whole thing is just absolutely fantastic yeah so actually i have two one was just posted today but i'll I'll go with the one i originally had which was abc mecca's falke so dang good 
I was oh, gonna man. do that one, but I was like, I bet John's <laughs> probably going to do it too. So I'll get. I did. <laughs> I did Andy last time, so I'll let John have. It's really good, and and the bass he put it on. You know, I I think the Falke for those who don't know. You know, TJ eloquently put it as the flying lobster, and I think that's very appropriate because it looks like one. But it's it's kind of hard to display, I think. And he actually did a fantastic job on a bass with kind of like a little mountainside, and it's banking towards the angle in which you're looking at it. So it's kind of a dramatic pose, and with its paint scheme, with the groundwork, it's just really flat out gorgeous, and just a, a really cool looking flying lobster. And then the second one, because I'm going to take two, just posted today, and it goes without saying, Darren's F-18 that TJ will see in person tomorrow is a stunner. He really made that Ming Hornet kit look easy. It's absolutely fantastic. My social media shout out's going to tie back to our interviews, and uh, we're going to give our friend Cobra Pla from the show that we met up there a shout out. And um, if you go to Instagram, he's just uh, Cobra Pla, all one word, C-O-B-R-A-P-L-A. Uh, he does mostly Gundam kits, but he also does uh, Star Wars and other sci-fi. And what caught my eye at his table was he had done a really beautiful, legit uh, Mark I Colonial Viper. And anytime uh, somebody does a great job on one of those, it's going to catch my eye. And uh, that's kind of what got me talking to him. So anyway, Cobra Pla on Instagram, give him a follow. And uh, I think you're really going to like his work. I go on. I've, I shared this on my Facebook and it received a lot of attention. I have to shout out uh, Lucas Zaba. And his Facebook page is Zaba Art. His bust and figure painting is unreal. It's so nice and smooth. It looks CGI. It's just shocking level of skill. Part of me thinks it's not even real. It's that good. But he does. It does fantasy stuff like um, hobbits and orcs and things like that. Stuff that doesn't really take my fancy. But it's 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 the amount. Of, he's also a sculptor, so he sculpts a lot of the work he does. It's just incredible. It's it's a shocking level of... It's hard to believe you can do this with a paintbrush sort of level of jealousy. It's really good. Check him out. It's uh, Zaba Art. Z-A-B-A-A-R-T. I'm shocked he only has 3,100 followers on Facebook. 3,101. I just followed him. It's really good. Yeah, it's good stuff. I've got one. (laughs) (laughs) I, I found on Instagram scaled steel models... Um, and right now this guy has got for the last two weeks, he's been working on a Tamiya 35th scale Panther and he's been doing, uh, updates day by day, um, including some really nice, uh, scratch built armor that he's put on it. Uh, and he's getting pretty close to done. It's beautiful. He's got a, the, uh, ambush camo on it. And, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how this one ends up. I follow him as well. He's got some good work. He just got another follower from me. All right. That'll take us for social media shout outs. Now, just a reminder, the Posse is just one of several scale modeling podcasts out there. We are a member of a group of great podcasts. If you would like to see a list of them, other podcasts plus social media creators, head on over to modelpodcast.com and you will find links to many of them. We want to remind everyone there's lots of ways to interact with the Posse. You can email us at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Plastic Posse. You can also find us on Instagram at Plastic Posse Podcast. Twitter at Plastic, sorry, Twitter is at Posse Podcast. And on our fresh YouTube channel, Plastic Posse Podcast. Last but certainly not least, we have several group builds going. 
TJ, how are they going? How are they coming along? Uh, everything is going on really good. So I'm not really going to focus on most of them. I'm sure you guys have all heard the ones that we've have the T3485, the Spitfire, the TIE Fighter. Well, those are the three. But the the main the one that we have going on would be the M3 M4 group build. Still, lots of really good work going on. Um, I specifically want to call out Stephen Reed's IDF Target Sherman. He's got some color on it. It looks friggin' sweet. He's done a lot of really good works on it, work on it. Yeah, it's just that one of the most interesting vehicles, I think, out of the whole list. Just absolutely fantastic. Grant Mayberry is uh, working on his early IDF Sherman as well, doing some uh, little scratch mods that he's doing himself. And uh, our friend Peter is dangerously close to finishing his Fizlowski. I think that's how you say his last name. Hopefully I didn't butcher it again. Like I've done multiple times, Peter. I apologize. He's getting really close. Fantastic finish. I love his model. It's it's one of my favorites out of out of the group. Um, that's what I've noticed that's been going on in the group build. Um, I believe JB, you have one of one of the builds at your house now. I do, I do. Hendrick was so kind to send over his M4A1 from Asuka. Absolutely gorgeous kit. Even better figure. The figure is, I'm going to take pictures of it and study it and try to copy it because his work is absolutely fantastic. Unfortunately, it did, it was a casualty in the mail. So the model was attached to a base. And, and I would recommend people, if you're good at mail models, don't do that because it's just it's just really hard sometimes. Uh, and any kind of shift can cause a catastrophe. So in this case... Some bogeys are broken. Some tracks are broken. The barrel came off. Bottom line is it's all fixable. I'm going to take some time tomorrow and get it cleaned up. I think it shouldn't be that problem at all. But again, thank you so much, Hendrick, for sending it over. It'll be a cornerstone display at the at the Plastic Posse uh, display at Nationals. Again, super gorgeous. I'm actually excited to show it to Doug, Scott, and TJ in two weeks. I think uh, I think they'll certainly love it. And I was talking him to him today, and I'm going to take it to Commies Fest and enter it under his name. So if he wins an award, I'll mail it out to him in uh, in Germany. So thank you again for so much for sending it, and and I look forward to seeing everyone else's work get completed. Speaking of group builds, there's a rumor going around that we're going to have another group build someday, and there are already guys out there <laughs> buying kits for it. <laughs> that is accurate. I'm sure most people have heard us talk about it, um, and we've discussed it internally. Uh, it has not started yet, but it's. I think probably after Nats is when we'll, we'll kick it off. Once we get Nats in the rearview mirror, uh, we will be doing a full-on Machine and Krieger build because – it is the best subject to model. So tell me, TJ, what what is it about Machine and Krieger that that makes it makes it so great to to all of us? I mean, we all seem to really enjoy it. And when Gundam doesn't hold the same for you, what's the difference? Do you think it's the aesthetic of Machine and Krieger is, is what it is for me? I don't really like the Gundam style robots. That's just never really done anything for me. Um, I fully recognize that is very, very extremely popular. And the models are fantastic. I'm not taking any of the models, just for me as a builder, just don't really hold my attention. I like Machine and Career because it's like Star Wars-esque, right? You know, it's a lived-in universe. And that's, you know, I, I just, I like that. It, and everything looks um, utilitarian. It looks purposeful. Like humans actually built this, like, especially when you see the, the true masters like Brian and the way they they do these things where it's 
it's 100% a science fiction. It's like he, the hover tanks he builds. There, there's no mistaking their science fiction, but there's jerry cans strapped to him. There's tarps. There's stowage. There's modifications where it would make sense where a human being would that thinks like us would be like, oh, you know, we should add something here because it makes the most sense. That's part of the reason why I like Machine Reader so much. No, I agree. There's um, there's only one style of Gundam I like, and that's the Zaku 2s. And that's because I think that I can make them look a bit like World War One Germanic soldiers. I think because I can remotely associate it with being slightly historical looking. But I completely get what you mean. A lot of the Gundams, I just it just nothing for me. I've tried to build them, and it's just just nothing like gets me attached. And and I mean, Gundam casts such a, a wide net. There there are lots of. No, I wouldn't say lots, but there are a number of designs where like that is really cool. I really like that. The, the Zaku is one of them. I do like the Zaku. Um, there's been others too that's just like, man, that is really cool looking. But um, yeah, I mean, and I think you kind of touched on the the historical side of it because Machine and Krieger has its roots in designers that were influenced by World War II equipment. As 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 a history fan and as particularly a World War II modeling fan, that also speaks to me. So it's it's not alternative history. It's not Nazis in space or anything like that. It's just takes that look and then does something else with it. And I, it's cool. It plus gives you an excuse to use a bunch of random ass decals that don't make sense, and you can just slap them on something, and it's like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, cool. Yeah, I there's greedies too. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's because. Some of them you can see what the the parts were, you know, what the kit when they were designing the original kit, what they used, kind of like how you can look at Star Wars ships and be like, oh, that's a that's a Sherman bogey on the back of a Tie Fighter. For anyone that didn't know that, I think you know maybe one thing as well to note, and, and I would say it's probably the same in in Gundam and larger sci fi community is the community itself in those groups, Koyokoyama on Facebook, on North American Mac, in Brian's forum. There's a very supportive community, and I don't think I've ever seen a post where someone gets emotional and there's a rage quit or there's name calling. It's it's very open. It's very accepting. Honestly, the only time I ever see any type of emotion is if somebody posts like a recast or something, and, and rightfully so, but it, it's a very supportive community, and I've never seen someone do something like you can paint it literally whatever you want. What was the one? It was, it came out yellow. It was, was it a camel? Like a construction yeah. color? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you think in the, Tom, in the, Tom Hutchins, I think. Yeah. It was awesome. You know, and, and dare I say it in some, in some forums for scale modeling, maybe I would say the more purist form, they, they, they look down on stuff like that. I'm not going to make any bones about it. You guys know, you know, but in that community, it's like, man, that's cool. Not why would you do that? It's, why didn't you do that before? That is awesome. Why didn't I think of that? I think that's what you see a lot from those kind of people from from that community. It, the the other thing, um, since you mentioned community specifically about Machine and Krieger, is Koyokuyama Sensei is in these groups and he interacts yeah. with. I mean, he's he's alive. You know, he <laughs> like some people don't know that some because it's from the eighties and yeah. Spoiler, people the nineteen eighties. We're kind of a long time ago. I know <laughs> for some of the older people, it feels like just yesterday, but uh, dude, it, it really wasn't. It was kind of a long time ago. So it, it, a, a lot of newcomers to Machine Career don't realize that he's alive and interacts with us and still is designing things now. 
And I, I didn't, I, I, th- I know you guys know, and I don't think I ever mentioned it on the podcast, but when my uh, machine and Krieger SAFS, the regular, the original eggplant six, eggplant six markings, the one, the first one I did that I took the Nats that won gold in its category. When I post that on Facebook, someone sent it to Koyokiyama and he commented on that, how much he liked it. That that's like a pinnacle moment of scale modeling for me. I don't even care about the award, but the, the man that designed the suit that I built told me that he really liked what I did like that, that right there, like obviously the, the designer of a Sherman tank isn't going to tell you, Hey, I really like your Sherman <laughs> tank. And it, we'll just leave it at that. So that's, <laughs> that doesn't happen with most other genres and modeling. George Lucas doesn't get on the internet and be like, Hey kid, <laughs> that's a really good X-wing you did. By the way, I'm going to sue you now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a great point about Co. And, you know, he's also posting new stuff for the community. One of the coolest things I saw was within the last, what, two or three months, he posted the internals of the Falke that weren't really ever shown before. Yeah. And he just kind of scratched them up and people were like, oh, my gosh. And it, it was just, it was, again, really cool. I, I don't think that's kind of a normal thing. Like you said, you're not going to have Dave Filoni or John Favreau commenting on your Razor Court crest so yeah because th- this year is the 40th anniversary of mm-hmm. sf3d um machine Grieger, dbz 3000 you know, they're all kind of blended together now under the machine Krieger umbrella but it, this is the 40 year anniversary so that's why he sh- that's why he showed the internals it was the big the big reveal of like oh here's what it actually looks like <laughs> and, and sorry to keep going on this i think maybe one of the other things that adds to the community and the scale modeling around machine and Krieger is it's scarcity. You know, I, I think that drives a lot of interest where, you know, for me, <laughs> I'm always, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but there's so much out there, but it's so hard to find. And, you know, you could like just today, um, uh, blood, uh, Ruxin out of, out of Texas posted his, I think it was, was it a Friedrich or something? Anyway, just a cool boxer that I'd never even seen before. I'm like, okay, now I want that. And I, I, you just, you're always on the hunt, Aaron. I'm sure he's bought like four since we've started this segment. Hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your Mac. <laughs> so thanks so much for those updates, TJ. You know, something we need to delve into right now is the toy that you recently bought. And I bought one as well, but mine is still in the box. And yours has cranked out more pieces than, than a factory in World War II with Sherman tanks. So we're going to talk about all things 3D printing right now. I, I think TJ, before it even showed up on his porch, he had like the, it plugged in for crying out loud. Within probably <laughs> 10 minutes. Uh, but, you know, this past week, uh, TJ picked up the Anycubic 4K off of Amazon for a wicked good deal. Too good to pass up. So I got one. And I know a few other people did as well. Billy out of Panzer Concepts picked one up as well. So let's just take this time to talk about this new toy. You know, in the past, I've struggled a lot. Ivan, you've struggled a lot too with 3D printing. So much so that we probably want to chuck our old machines out in the friggin' driveway and hit it with a baseball bat like the movie Office, and everybody can take a swing at it. But, you know, TJ, what I've been most impressed with your 3D journey, I don't even if you can call it a journey. It's a sprint that's, you know, turned into a marathon because you're a machine. Um, but, you know, the success rate, and that's something that I struggled with and a lot of people do. And Maybe, maybe you could just fill our listeners in on kind of what machine you bought and what was your process for setting it up and what you've learned in the short time you've done it and some of the kick-ass prints that you've put out as well. 
All right. Let me preface all of this with I am not an engineer. I am not a software engineer. I know nothing. This is literally the first time I've touched a 3D printer ever. I don't even know anyone locally that owns one. So I came from this like cold with no experience. Um, that being said, I I bought an Anycubic Photon Mono 4K for like John said, a stupid good price. My wife bought it for me, air quotes, um, as an early birthday, a very, very early birthday present. Of course, she then threatened, well, you know, you can't open that till July for your birthday. I was like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so and I also want to say I, I kind of hesitated, not kind of, I did hesitate um, jumping into 3D printing for a couple of reasons. One, um, I, same reason why I don't make videos, because people have asked me, well, why don't you make scale modeling videos? I, I don't want to. I don't have the time to. It's another hobby, and it's an, something I don't know natively, so I didn't want to take the time to learn. Um, and that's kind of how I thought about 3D printing as well, because I've watched videos, you know, and I'm like, holy crap, this is like a whole thing. Like, I, I don't uh, – if I want to keep making models and doing what I really like to do, I'm going to have to stop doing that to learn how to do this, and I just – I didn't want to make that sacrifice. But now it seems like you don't really have to do that um, because it's, I think it's easier now than ever. Um, so the other important thing is I have not designed anything myself and, um, mad props to people that do, I, I would like to, I'm not going to act like I'm not going to, but for now finding SCL files, even ones that aren't pre-supported. Um, I started with pre-supported. I've, I've now I've printed a few things that weren't, um, supported. So figuring out supports and all that stuff, um, but yes, for now, I'm sticking to when I can pre-supported STLs. And I, I don't know if I just got really lucky, but I have not had a print fail. I've had prints that have issues, but I haven't had a straight up failure yet. Save for one, but it was my fault. So it, it wasn't anything to do with the printer. It, the file, the, the when I ran it through the slicer, I was telling you guys before, the, the object was not on the print bed and I thought it was. So it was part of a bunch of things that I printed because I, I have learned to maximize build volume whenever you can, because I don't know if you guys know this, but 3d printers don't care about how much area you print on the print bed. They care about how tall it is. So if you're going to pr print one thing, print a bunch of things, even if they're unrelated to what you're doing. Like I just picked random crap. That I'm like, Oh yeah, I want this. I want this one, this because I was printing something rather tall anyway. So, I mean, throw stuff in there because there's no reason not to. Um, yeah, it just wasn't on the print bed, and that was my fault. I, I didn't check before I sliced the files and, and exported them. But um, I will – go ahead. I was just going to say, so for the uneducated people, uh, myself included, what software are you using for your slicing and ultimately you know, putting it in the machine to, to make it run? So uh, – on the recommendation of Zach and Aaron, I use Lychee. Um, it's one of the two main ones. The other one is Cheetah Box or something like that. Um, from what they told me that uh, Lychee is more user-friendly, and I have not tried the other one yet because I like Lychee so much. Um, it, it, you know, I, 
I said I'm not an engineer and I have no experience in this kind of stuff, but I, I did make drawings for as a job um, for a while, like using AutoCAD and we use a 3D program. I don't remember what it was called. It's been it's been a long time. Um, so I, I have some experience in that kind of software and um, it's very in, intuitive, like plus it, YouTube exists. So if you want to learn how to do something, just find the YouTube video on it. And since 3D printing is so popular, you'll find good videos. But that's what you use to slice your files and export them to print files. And you put them on a USB port and you plug it into the side of the thing and you press play. And we, it's really that easy. That's awesome. Where do you have this set up? Right now, it's it's behind me. Um, it's in the basement. It doesn't really smell. The only time it even really smells is if you take the lid off and you got resin in the vat. But even then, you have to be standing on top of it. Um, I've been using any cubic craftsman resin and uh, Sierra tech fast, which was a recommendation from both uh, Billy and Aaron. I think they, I know Billy uses that it's the Navy blue. Yep. It's pretty good. I, I like it. It is different than the, the uh, any cubic craftsman resin. I, I'm not necessarily saying it in a bad way. I've just noticed that it, it behaves differently after it's cured because the Sierra tech fast is like a, they call it ABS like, okay, sure. Yeah. I, I like it. I printed a little uh, Among Us crew members for my kids because they're obsessed with that game. And I sanded them down and they look, it was just like very lightly. And they look, I mean, it looks like it, it, you can't see any layer lines in it. <laughs> they're really cool. Yeah, it really shows the evolution of printing and the applicability to our hobby. I think now if, gosh, if I'm, if I'm an aftermarket producer, I'm, I'm kind of worried because these things at the tip of your fingertips and there's so many STLs out there, whether it's on Thingiverse Cult 3D, um, you know, wh- what's what's the subscription service that you've been using to get your sci-fi prints? So I joined Loot Studios. Um, there's a number of 3D printing subscription services out there. Most of them are through Patreon. Loot, on the other hand, has their own website. It's the most expensive one. And by expensive, I mean it's $15 a month. So it's not that expensive. But compared to a lot of the other ones, which are like between 7 or $9 a month, yeah, it's more expensive. However... I think the files are the best. I have not printed anything from the other subscriptions um, services, but after watching a bunch of videos, the, the general consensus is Loot Studios is the best as far as the files go. The thing with the script, subscription service is you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. It's almost like a grab bag. So the way they do it is every month has like its own theme. So when I joined this month, which would be February, the current loot, as they call it, is Spaceship crashers the theme is a crew of space of guys in a spaceship have crashed and they're fighting these aliens the aliens are really cool the crew members are are, are awesome it's just kind of generic sci-fi um this the files come in 32 millimeter and 75 millimeter so one's for gaming one's for display they're d- really designed for like miniature agnostics games which are are out there if anyone's not familiar with that term it's it's not like a Warhammer, where the rules company also makes the models. There's a bunch of independent, usually they're indie developers that make their own set of rules. Here's the rules. Go find whatever miniatures you can, whatever you want, and then you can play our game using these miniatures. So that's where this kind of stuff really, and same thing with like Dungeons and Dragons, you can make your character and then print them. I'm really excited because next month for Loot Studios, they've released some teaser art. It is Dune themed. So it's not straight up Dune, but they definitely have an ornithopter that looks almost identical to the one from the from the new dune movie which is really really good 
Yeah, that's that's awesome. So in addition, you mentioned Patreon. I'm actually I'm I'm happy to get my printer up and going because I subscribed to Tank Brusher and it's it's just a guy. I think he's out of Europe, and he is making all kinds of 35th scale detail parts for the Hetz or Jagdpanzer 38T for you purists. My bad. Um, and then also like Tiger Panther. So he, he's a really great guy. Awesome work. He does a, videos with everything and certainly someone that if you're interested in armor for 650 a month, you have access to all of these things. Super nice guy too. Really responsive and, and very helpful. So something that's certainly up Ivan and I's uh, alley. And, and speaking of Ivan, you need to get one of these printers and just toss that Photon S like probably what I'm going to do. Yeah, I was going to say that I'm I'm convinced that our <laughs> 3D printing mishaps are down to the printer because we are not stupid people. We know how to level a bed. We know that the FEP needs to be like tight like a drum. I know you know you know what I mean. Like we we oh, know 100%. what we're doing. Um, we know what we do. We know how to level a bed. That's actually really simple. I'm just convinced the issue actually is with the printers we've got. Um, yeah. The answer to that problem is buy another printer. Simple. I have um, no idea what you're talking about. Leveling leveling a bed? Maybe I'm stupid. I don't know. Yeah, you need a spirit level. So so pretty much what what we're talking about, Doug, is the I don't know if you've ever watched how they work, but it's there's a, a rod, right? And the print bed is on that rod and it dips down into a vat that's over what they call it's over the UV matrix, right? So the insides shoot UV lights up in the pattern that the printer is telling it to do that's how it prints the and that cures the resin in the layers as as it moves up so the print bed dips down into the resin for resin printers everyone just so listeners are aware we're not talking about filament printers the the print bed dips down into the resin the uv matrix shoots up through a film and that is what makes the print and as the the thing rises up out of the the goo which looks really cool there's your you're making so that print bed your your build plate has to be level with the screen if it's not it you know as it comes up stuff will start to get crooked and they won't adhere they won't build right you'll have failures that's that is the that and keep your fep clean fep sheet clean and undamaged those are like the two golden rules when it comes to resin 3d printing yeah yeah and and tj mentions that you know, each layer being kind of essentially a picture. And really that's, that's almost what it is. And, and it goes to what he was saying earlier about slicing it and using that slicer software. So you have, you know, your object and it slices it X number of times. And each slice is a dip into the vat. It flashes it, pull, you know, pulls it up and then does it over and over again. And, and as TJ mentioned, you know, the most important thing is just your vertical height. And that, that really is what is the length of the, of the print. And, you know, it's, it's incredibly intuitive once you have one right in front of you, as yes. TJ mentioned. Yeah. So, I mean, like, like I said before, like I knew nothing about this, but I, I've read the instructions. I watched like one or two videos and that night I printed uh, an astronaut bust. Um, that looks fantastic. I, I know. I think I, I texted Ivan that I, <laughs> I woke up at six o'clock that morning, which is pretty normal for me, but I definitely was, I knew it was going to be ready when I woke up too. So I was like, Ooh, Yeah. And like um, Christmas morning, it was, and, and, I, and I took it off. I took it off the printer. I ran it through the the wash and cure station that I also bought, and washed it up. And I was just looking at it, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like 
this is like I did not have this yesterday. I pressed a <laughs> I pressed a button. I went to bed and when I woke up, I had this and I think I I told you Ivan I was like I'm I'm just floored by yeah how good this is and and, yeah. and they're not perfect right like it's it I'm not gonna you know if you're not familiar with 3D printing I, I don't want to oversell it right it's not it's not perfect and there are imperfections and there's places where you can see layer lines and there's ways to deal with that or you could just not care about it I know if, if anyone's been following me on on Facebook and on Instagram I printed um old man Logan. Um, so I'm good. Holding, I'm holding up so the the guys can see it, even though they've all seen it. Uh, this is from Fotis Mint um, on Patreon. This, he designs busts, I, so I'm sure it's been, I've mentioned it. I really like bust painting. It's one of my favorite things to paint. Old Man Logan is exactly what it sounds like. It's Wolverine, but he's old. Um, it's from a really good comic run from I think the late aughts. Yeah, it's really cool. So I saw this. I was like I gotta have it. I printed it, and it's flawless. There's like one or two places where you can see layer lines. One of them's on his belt buckle because uh, it's like from his waist up. And there's a couple areas like on the, the chest because he's wearing a shirt that's like kind of ripped. You can kind of see it there. But other than that, I mean, I didn't even sand it to fill it or try to sand him out because I just don't care. You can't see it from from where I'm sitting right here. And it's less than arms like the way for me. You can't see it. I think the, you know, the other important thing is, you know, you mentioned Patreon, you mentioned um, loot, but, you know, even if you're paying a few bucks a month, you know, maybe, you know, throw all in 20, 30 bucks a month, you have your initial investment. Let's just say that's around 400 for the printer and wash station. That's still, when you start printing this stuff, you hold that bus in your hand, TJ, right there of old man Logan. That's a $60, 50 to $60 bust if you're buying if it not, off of if the not vendor. more. If not, if more, not more, maybe even 80, I'd say, because yours is pretty big. And when you start to think about that and the amount that you've printed in a week, to be honest, you've almost paid for it already. And it's yeah. absolutely unbelievable. And resin, I'm going to throw it out there. In the grand scheme of things, it's probably not that much at the frequency and the volume at which you're printing. You can probably print a ton of bus for a bottle of resin. Oh, yeah. I've, I've bought – I have three kilos of resin. They come in half kilo or one kilo bottles. I've I've got two one kilo bottles and then two like half kilo bottles. So all told, I have three kilos of resin. I've used maybe half of one and maybe a quarter of the other one. I, I switched. I use I was using the Craftsman's resin. I wanted the Sierra Tech resin to see how it it's been working, yeah. how it works. That's what I've been using. If you see any of my prints that aren't painted, if it's blue, it's the Sierra Tech. If it's any other color, it's the Craftsman. Yeah, I mean, I, I've barely, I feel like I've barely done anything, and I've printed. If, if you guys could see my desk, I've printed a lot of crap. Do you hollow out your busts? Yes. So Loot Studios, each file offers a hollow and non-hollow um, one. So I did not know that at first. So the first one I printed, the astronaut, he is solid. And, I, and I'll tell you right now, he's he's got some he's got some heft to him. Like he's a, he's a thick boy. Everything else, I I have printed the hollow one. Now that being said, um, slicers can hollow things for you. So that is what I've been doing now. And that that so I would advise if you want to get into it. And of course, I'm no expert, so please just take everything I say with a grain of salt. Please. Um, start with a pre-supported file done by a professional, learn that, you know, learn how to manipulate that in the slicer, 
you know, do a test prints too with there's different files out there where you can get little tiny things that are designed to to make sure your your set your resin settings are right and that your printer is working right. Do those and then start printing stuff that has been professionally made, pre-supported, that that person knows what they're doing. Get that under your belt. Then you can start going to unsupported files, um, adding supports yourself. Now, I have found that at least Lychee is really good with auto supports. They tend to add more than I think you need. And part of the learning process is figuring out which supports you can get away. The less supports you have, in my opinion, the better. It's less cleanup. Um, they use, they come off pretty easy generally, but it's still something you're going to have to clean up. That's, I think another important thing to, for people that aren't familiar with 3d printing is you don't just print it and it's done. Like they do take work. It's not, we're not, you know, this isn't like replicators from Star Trek. We're not there yet. Like it's not a perfect item that comes out when it's done. You have to wash it. You have to clean it, um, to clean the supports and you have to cure it. It's not just it comes off the printer and you can do whatever you want with it. Like it, it does take work and then just go from there and learn, you know, how your printer works the best and which way you'll learn how to orient your objects and the slicer and which way, like the, the one crew member that I printed for anyone that's ever played among us, which I, I, I don't, my kids are obsessed with it. Uh, the imposter, which is the one that kills all the other characters in the game has like a little, like, monster mouth kind of looks like the character venom from uh <laughs> from uh spider-man he's got like teeth and a little tongue that comes out when i printed mine I, I printed him face down with all the teeth and there's supports all over the teeth and i was like after i did that and i'm gonna getting ready to print them another one i'm going to arrange it so the supports aren't on every single tooth and the supports will easier to sand when i'm done so that, that, and that's just kind of stuff you're going to learn. And because you can print so much with resin, if you screw up, it's okay. Just print another one. That's the best part. You know, when you're building plastic models or whatever, everyone's worried, oh, I'm going to mess this up. And, you know, I won't have another one. I have to go buy another one. You mess up a 3D print, just print another one. The only thing that's going to cost you really in the grand scheme of things is it's time. And, um, and obviously a little bit of resin, but I mean, you get so much for a whole lot, not a whole lot of money. You can afford to make mistakes. That's that's kind of part of the process. I think one gripe I had about it, and I think John was the same with this, is with with our photon, we would like wait four hours. And it's like, oh, let's check the progress. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's stuck to the FEP. Yeah, that's four four hours of my life I'm not getting back. And then it's yeah. like, yeah, I'm not cleaning that. It can stay in the corner now. I'm but <laughs> so and and that's the other thing and. Like I, I've mentally prepared myself for that one day I'm going to have a print that's going to fail and it's going to be a pain in the butt because I only have the one printer. And now I also see why people that get into this have more than one printer because it, you just increase your volume of output and you can do different things and, and print a bunch of different stuff, you know, at the same time. And, and that, you know, for a productivity standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. But um, yeah, I, I just, I know the, the will, there will be a print that has failed and it's going to be a pain in the ass. But you know, the other thing <laughs> what help works for me is I'll start a print before I go to work. So typically most, the longest print I've had was 11 hours and I started it maybe at night before I went to bed and it was still running when I went to work. So when I got home from work, it was done. So it's not like I 
started it and sat around for hours, you know, like, <laughs> oh, here it comes, just like waiting. I was at work, even though I didn't want to be there. I still had, <laughs> you know, I still had something to distract me from the fact that I had stuff printing at home. I did that once. Um, I was printing a, a fairly hefty Geralt of Rivia bust uh, where he's meditating whilst on his knees. Um, I left it overnight, came back the following morning. He wasn't hollowed and I didn't put enough resin in. Um, uh, so oh, no. it was it was half a Geralt. Um, and again, after that, I was like, yeah, I'm putting it back in the box. My, my own mistake was I'm sick of this. Yeah. It, but, but like you said, TJ, I mean, your success rate's so good. I mean, for for a week's worth of printing and not having to level the bed, not having to, you know, clean the FEP sheets and, and literally anything like that. It's, it's, it's really motivating. And, and for the bed leveling, just, just so I know when I do it, you just followed the sheet they provided in the, in the, in the kit. Yep. It took like 30 seconds. Uh, my daughter and I did it. Now she, I'm um, going to be feeling real stupid if I can't get this right. <laughs> um, I told her I told her what to do. She pressed the buttons. She even tightened the screws down on the side. She oh, was awesome. adamant that she did it. I'm like, yeah, knock yourself out. I don't care. That's sweet. So, and my younger daughter, too, my 10-year-old. Let me <laughs> go ahead and throw that one at you. <laughs> Wasn't you know my maybe, almost 13-year-old. It was my 10-year-old. Maybe we need to print some uh, plastic posse swag or something and bring it to Nats and hang it out. It, it, it has crossed my mind. Trust me. Well, Scott, you've been quiet. I know you've been eyeing one for a while. Just just whip out that wall and buy it. Come on, man. I've actually, like I, I was telling you guys offline, I've actually been looking at the Mono uh, 6K just because I wanted a little bit bigger build plate and wanted some, you know, as far as revolu- resolution, maybe a little bit of forward uh, compatibility. But I've been uh, listening very carefully, kind of taking mental notes. But um, yeah, I'm going to get into it. I think it's really great. I'm a mostly sci-fi builder like TJ. I'm not really into busts like he is, but um, the ability to maybe print a droid in different scales, you know, like uh, whip out a little 132nd scale R2-D2 would be just killer, you know, so uh, very, very intrigued by it. So yeah, I'll be... Yeah, you know, once we get a little bit of time under our belt, I think we should have Billy on from Panzer Concepts because he is a print genius who just gave me some settings for mine and i'd love to you know pick his brain on printing and all things about it because he's certainly an expert and i think he has a it's considered a print farm i would say he has a print farm yeah uh he's a pro and and his work is stellar and and tj gets back to kind of what you said before when you get the experience you get into it you start to understand how you can orient things how you should support it where do you put the drain holes and and he can talk a lot about that learning curve and maybe hopefully cover some pitfalls that we don't run into uh, as we go throughout this journey. So I think, I think one of the most important things to remember is it's, it's a dumb machine. It only does what you tell it to do. So if you don't tell it to do something, it's not going to do it. Um, I think because it seems so futuristic and, and all this stuff that maybe some people that, and I certainly am probably guilty of this myself that, you know, the machine does all this work for you, but no, the machine only does what you tell it to do. And if you don't tell it, like where I had the issue where I didn't put the object in the slicer where it should be, well, the machine didn't care. It didn't stop and say, oh, hey, hey, dummy, uh, you didn't actually put this on the build plate. You Do you realize that? No, it just did its thing like it wasn't even there. So that that's just really important to remember in most, most of the time what I've found and what I've read and what I've watched in videos that if something messes up, 
it's usually your fault. And figuring that out, um, it makes, is how you get better. It's not always your fault. Don't, don't, please don't take it that way. But more often than not, if, if you know your machine's working well and something doesn't work right, it's something you did. Just f- find out what that is, fix it, and then move on. That's all you got to do. Yeah, and you mentioned the machine itself. It is a very rudimentary machine. Honestly, it's just you know a plunging plate with a screen that emits a literally in the basic of form in ignorance is a picture, and it burns that picture of resin uh, as a layer, and that's it. Now I'm sure you know the purists out there are going to hate my analogy, but in the basic form, that's really what this is. It's a simple machine, and like you said, TJ, you're telling it the settings, literally everything. Uh, unfortunately, there's such a community out there that have provided those printer settings. It's it's you don't even need to do much. Literally, I shot DJ a message and was like, "Hey, what are you using?" And same with you, TJ. You just take a picture of your screen, and then up oh, there are all the settings that work. Let me plug it in and go. Another good place to get files is Etsy. Oh, yes, I that's know where that. I got that's where I got all my Halo STLs because nothing on Thingiverse for them. Uh, Etsy is fantastic for STL files. Can confirm that is true. I bought some files from um, from Etsy, and it, it, I think the other thing is that people should know what, as far as it comes to like buying files. More often than not, they're not that expensive. Uh, you're, I'm talking about a couple bucks, right? Like, and to me, you're, and most often, you're that money is going directly to a creator that like someone took their time to make these files, and you're giving the money for it because. You're you're paying for their product, right? You're paying for their labor. Their labor was designing these 3D files, so it's it's pretty. Neat. The most expensive file I bought was was twenty dollars. Is the one I was showing you guys before, but there's so many objects. It's that whole figure in two scales, the zombie that she's killing with a sword, a base, and not say for work version of the of the figure because, of course, and. <laughs> And another version of the figure, also not safe for work. Um, so, oh, and full size um, files of the weapons that she's holding, both the claymore and the axe that she has on her belt. If you have an FDM printer, especially, use that file. You can print a full size version of this big, huge claymore that she's slicing the zombie in half with. So, for twenty dollars, you get so much, so much stuff that I was like, eh. I mean, it's worth it to me. Yeah, and some of these I've actually seen when I was, I think it was Cults 3D I was looking at. They're actually, you can pay more and get like a license, essentially a licensing fee to the to the creator. So you buy the print. I've seen a couple like figures for 35th scale tanks. You pay 75 bucks and you can sell them. And to be honest, they are gorgeous. And you could probably make your money back pretty easily being a vendor. But, you know, there's that option too. If you're not into 3D modeling, you can still create product with what's available out there. All right. It's time for feedback. Before I jump in, I want to personally thank everyone who's written in with suggestions, photos, and letting us know how you feel. It means so much to us. We're going to start with an uh, announcement. Zach Pease has asked us to announce that IPMS Central Connecticut Modelers Club has their annual scale model swap meet on Saturday, March 19th in Glastonbury, Connecticut from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the Buckingham Congregational Church. So uh, we will share that uh, flyer for you on our page. Go out and check it out if you're in the area. 
Jeff Thompson. Hey guys, just wanted to say I've been loving your podcast ever since I discovered it by listening to On the Bench and The Model Geeks. Wait, who? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've been catching up on all the uh, posse episodes while at my model bench and driving my truck at work. It's also really good to know how much attention you guys give to mental health. Being a sufferer myself, it's really good to hear other people's stories I can relate to. Anyway, just wanted to say how much I'm loving the show and keep up the good work, fellas. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your feelings there. Russ Jones from a Military Model Man Hut. He says, hi, guys. Just want to say what a great podcast you put on. Perfect for listening at the bench here in Carnforth, England. Did I say that right, Ivan? Carnforth? Yeah, yeah. Uh, could you please give a Triple P shout out to my local model club, IPMS Lanks? Ivan, get yourself down to us. We'd, like to, we'd love to see some of your builds in the flesh. Well, funnily enough... Um- the first Wednesday of March, I will be going to IPMS Lancashire. Uh, first time going. Um, I've always tried to avoid uh, club meetings, but first time going, I'm actually really looking forward to meeting everyone because a lot of people on my Facebook who attend that club. So I am really looking forward to going down. Awesome. Ricky Hoskin, I've been building Gunpla for about two years and you guys have inspired me to try new things. I just purchased the Tamiya 148th Spitfire Mark I and I'm going to snag an armor model to try out also. Maybe the Border Models Crusader. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks, Ricky, and thanks for branching out and trying new things. It's always something that we try to do and that's cool to hear that you're uh, giving new things a try. And the Crusader rules, so good choice. That's a great little kit. I haven't built it yet, but I've seen you guys build them up. It's it's pretty rad. And Martin Drayton. Hi, guys. Just looking for some advice. Omaha will be my first competition. I've, I've heard some people talk about bringing a modeling first aid kit for those little accidents and emergencies. Do you guys have any suggestions on essential things to have handy? Thanks so much. Keep up the great work on the podcast. Kindest regards. What do you say, guys? What, what first aid kit would you bring for your kits going to CA. Nats? Yeah, super glue. Yeah. Probably the most important. Kicker as well. Kicker. I like a bit of kicker. I would I would recommend the black super glue because it dries matte and you don't have to worry about any sheens and it's dark. Uh, but also a big makeup brush to dust off the models that either you didn't dust off on your shelf or they've collected some dust in the carrying box. I think I think that's critical is just a big soft makeup brush to dust them off. Yeah, and a small little case that has an exacto blade, some tweezers and uh either a magnifier or uh, something that you can use to get a close-up look because chances are at the model show, you're not going to have great lighting. So you need to be able to see what you're doing. Yeah. And you know, if, if one other thing you want to pitch in there, if you're looking for paints, um, certainly a fine tip brush, I would recommend black. And if there's primary colors from your model, maybe just throw them in the box as well, because if something gets bumped off, you can come back and just literally touch it with a little bit of acrylic paint uh, to cover up that super glue or or fix any potential uh, mistakes in transit. I'll also say, you know, if you do break something in transit and it can't be fixed or you fix it and it's just not right, I would recommend leaving a note for the judges because I've judged pieces before that have been damaged in transit, whether it's a whip antenna, a machine gun that's been broken off. If you note it, the judge should respect that and take that into account and, and not ding you for it, essentially. Um, so there's that option as well. And then plus, there's always a seems to be a first aid station at the show. And at Nats, if you forget it, you can buy it from the vendors. Right. We had a we had a couple guys come to our table at Nats yeah. in Vegas and and get some stuff from us to fix up their their kits. Yeah. And, and we're going to have the same setup in, in Omaha where we'll be partnering with Value Gear sitting next to them. They have a demo station. There'll be paints there. There'll be glue. So to all of our listeners – 
you could just not bring a first aid kit and come see us if something happens. Alan Martin makes oh, everything yeah. he does are those great big dioramas. So <laughs> yeah, Martin, make sure you come prepared and then find, find us if you need a hand. All right. That's all I've got this time. I'm sorry if I missed your feedback, but uh, keep writing. We really appreciate it. I have one uh, that I would like to add. Um, Scott sent this email to me. Uh, Jared Cowell sent it to the Plastic Posse um, email address. And then Scott sent it over to me. And I, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's, it's really long and um, kind of quite personal. So, you know, I'm not going to do that. But I just want to thank Jared for writing in and saying the things that he said. And pretty much he thanked us for doing what we do and that we made him feel at home and his return to the hobby after a number of years. Um, and he sp- specifically said some things uh, to me that were probably some of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. And it, it was very touching. And uh, I just want to say that I appreciate it. And man, that was just, I was just shocked. Um, that was in, in a good way. It was, it was a good shock that um, he felt that way. And, and yeah, and I agree. <laughs> he knows, he knows what he wrote. So I, I would agree with his assessment. So of, of me, that was great feedback. It really, really was. And, you know, we encourage it, you guys. Um, we want you to feel like uh, you're our friends. That's how we feel about each and every one of you. That's what this community is about. And uh, this collaboration and exchanging ideas is is awesome. So please make sure, uh, send us an email at plasticpossipodcast at gmail.com. Send us a message on our Facebook page, whatever you're most comfortable with. But really, really appreciate that feedback. And, uh, you know, it really kind of helps justify what we do. Now, I was just going to mention, Scott, in addition to those, you know, electronic forms, if you see it at a sh- see us at a show, please stop by, say hi. You know, we ran into a lot of people in Seattle. I specifically want to call out the kind words and, and great meeting up with Eric Brubaker and his son, Daniel. You know, they just got back in the hobby. They entered some models there, said some really kind words about the podcast. And at the end of the day, those interactions, at least from my perspective, and probably everyone online echoes it, It's that's what makes the show worth it. And, and to see the joy that, you know, some of our content brings and getting to interact with those individuals. So again, from, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Yeah. Is there anything cooler than seeing a dad and his son and seeing how excited that his son was with that oh, yeah. T-34 he had? It was really good. I mean, it, was, it was awesome. It was really good. We'll post some pictures to accompany this episode. Uh, yeah. Father, son, mostly son and, you know, whitewash, wet effects, oil. I mean, he, I think he was, you know, he was, he was a young kid. So he, he's, he's got a bright future in modeling for sure, based on what he put on the table in, in Seattle. Yeah. And he had, uh, he went home with a model kit that was gifted to him and some great feedback. I think he's got a great future in the hobby for sure. Yeah. And Eric was cool. I'd, I'd love to have them on sometime to talk about, you know, how they, how they treat the hobby and, and what it does for them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a couple of items of business before we uh, start wrapping things up here. Uh, First of all, uh, listen to uh, the latest episode of Plastic Model Mojo with our good friends, uh, Mike and Dave. Uh, They have acknowledged uh, (laughs) their defeat and the challenge that we gave them. So we'll need to get them on and record. I mean, in all seriousness, though, uh, we have some fun at each other's expense here and there, but a great, great cause. The bottom line is, is Malcolm's uh, Malcolm's charity uh, Models for Heroes is going to 
get $100. And uh, man, there isn't a better cause that that could go to. And speaking of Models for Heroes, we want to give a shout out to James Skiffins and the Model Officers Mess. Uh, The Plastic Posse will be participating once again in the 48-hour build-off in the end of March. It's the weekend of the 25th, 26th, and 27th. If you are interested in participating in that, uh, the basically what you do is you sign up, you build a 48-scale kit in 48 hours, and you've got to be really, really efficient. But there'll be a live stream going the entire time. There'll be builders from Australia, uh, North and South America, as well as uh, Europe. And so um, just about any time zone that you're in, there's going to be people on their building. It's a great community. And then uh, they encourage donations to, uh, again, uh, Models for Heroes, which is just an awesome charity. Uh, The Posse is a big fan of what Malcolm does over there. So it's a great cause. It's a lot of fun. I think it was the highlight, guys, uh, for a lot of us. Yeah, it was certainly fun. I look forward to it again. You know, I also give a shout out to them. It's very professional as well. You know, they have they have it set up. I don't know if they use StreamYard, but whatever they do, there's smooth transitions, there's commercials, they keep the lively chat going. And I think last time, you know, as as all the folks in Europe are going to bed, the geeks and myself, and I think Scott, you were on there as well. We had, we had a good session and it was really the first time we interacted with those folks. So we encourage more to join. It's a fun time. And I don't know what I'm going to do this time. I, I might try to print something and do that. Or I might want to do one of those uh, Star Wars Legion tanks. How about you guys? What, any thoughts on if you're participating? And then if you are, uh, what, what are you going to build, you think? Well, I'm going to be – I'm definitely going to be there. I am kind of torn right now between a uh, Accurate Miniatures Yak 3. Not sure I want to do anything – on along those lines right now, I might do the 48 scale to me, uh, uh, Abrams tanks. Oh, nice. I've got a, a crusader two in one forty-eight scale that I'm kind of thinking about. Um, but there's still a couple of other kits that I'm, I'm considering. So haven't quite uh, made up my mind. Ivan thoughts. I'll have to have a think. I'll, it, it, it will be something, uh, armor 148 from Tamiya. Cause that's, that's just like a golden ticket to get it done. TJ pulled a 24-hour group build last year. Do you think you're going to do the same this year, TJ, or will you have? Uh... Uh, I don't know. I, I I would really like to participate. I just I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it happen. So I'm not committed yet, but we'll see. I, I would I would really like to, but my bandwidth is running a little little low at the moment. So we'll, we'll just have to see how that shakes out. You mean you can't squeak in like a dozen yeah. kits by March. I mean, I feel like that'll give you, that'll be the Baker's dozen that build off. Cause it's at the end of the month. Yeah. We'll see. Um, I know, I know, I guess I have a little bit of a reputation of building a lot, but, uh, <laughs> really I think what it is, is I work in bursts. So I, I'll do a whole bunch at once and then I need to, to cool down for a little while. And unfortunately I'm at the bottom of that crest right now. And I'm hoping here shortly it'll, I'll rise back up and I can get another whole group done. Well, guys, I think that's a bit for episode 40. My four amazing co-hosts will hopefully see a lot of you in Denver on the 12th of March. I will not be there for obvious reasons. Please join us again in two weeks for episode 41 for more fun discussions about all things scale modeling. Thanks again for joining us for episode 40. And remember to send us your feedback to plasticpossypodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, you guys stay well. And to all you out there in the posse, hoping each and every one of you find some time to spend at your bench. I guess the only thing left to say is, yeah! I think I just woke my, my grandkids are sleeping in the room right above me too. So. That-
That was good. There was no chance I was going to do that at <laughs> half past three in the morning. That was that was from the loins. Oh, look, right it there. Was, I was... said it just as it felt. I mean, look, it's all in caps. There's a lots of E's and lots of A's. I just had to get it all out. Yeah, you know, I haven't heard that war cry all the way across the pond. I was waiting the for the shock of it now.